Welcome back, Factor Fantasy fans. It's Chase and Josh here. Uh, you are the ridiculous crew jumping into the part five of Goblet of Fire. That's Chase. I'm Josh, and we're here to give you the goods today. Before we do that, Chase has got some awesome news that we forgot to mention last week when it comes to the numbers. So I'll let Chase take it away. Yeah, man, we uh, hit some pretty awesome numbers. Uh, one thing we didn't mention that is pretty huge, we have hit 10,000 downloads and we did it in one year. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if you follow, if you guys follow us on Facebook or Instagram, our own Jay Nelly put a big uh, post about that, man. And he, he, he does, you know, like he said, he does the big mile markers. I usually just kind of do the you know check out the episodes here and there with a, a couple cool like personal thoughts right on what the episode's gonna be but it was a really big one because i mean <clears throat> a lot of people don't know you know as podcasts that really you know you don't start with a fan base that's given to you it takes years to do that uh so we've been really fortunate to hit that in one year um also our two big ones that we just hit a couple weeks ago you know um, we did hit top 50 in the USA for fiction, and we hit um, top 100 uh, in the entire world for fiction, which, um, you know, that, that's a pretty big deal, which is pretty awesome. So uh, big props to that. Um, yeah, man, what's going on new with you, man? I'll tell you what, especially with, like, it being the dead middle of January, towards the end of January now... I, it's crazy how the time flies, but it's you guys see Chase and I here. If you're on if you're on uh, YouTube, you'll see it. If you're just listening to audio, I'll try to I'll try to describe it the best I can. Both him and I are in like our little uh, hoodies because it's a little it's a little chilly out, man. <laughs> a little chilly for it's getting cold. yeah, it's getting cold for Florida. So uh, it was about I think it was like 43 degrees when I woke up today. I took my dogs for a walk and. Uh, yeah, I had, to, I had to almost bust out the old winter jacket. I'm from New York, so I have like a winter ski jacket, and I almost thought about putting that on today. So outside of that, everything is good on my end. I, uh, I'll tell you that we're getting between this week and next week, we're going to be finishing up the book of, of Harry Potter and Goblet of Fire. And so obviously us doing our research ahead of time, we're already finished with it. And I just love the fact of you know how this book really ties a lot of stuff together without having a ton of plot holes such as other ones that we've talked about in previously so in this episode specifically i didn't think it, i think we talked about it yes last night you didn't have any plot holes i couldn't find any either for this specific episode which will take us from chapters 29 through chapter 33 i believe it's the dream through the death eaters i think that's the the chapter names um couldn't find really any plot holes or discrepancies in in that little section there's a couple for next week that uh, I remember that I have jotted down but uh, still overall this was a phenomenal book and so I'm excited to dive in and, and tackle the chapters we've got on task today next week we'll finish this bad boy up and then we'll get into our differences episode and then it's on to your book the order of the phoenix yeah man uh just a couple more things before we dive in because I know we got a lot to get into today and you know, I'm going to let you take some awesome, cool moments here. And this, guys, this is Jay Nelly's book, man. Like, this is, he knows it backwards and forwards. Um, and, and that's why, you know, on this one, I'm going to let him take a lot of the really big, action-packed, climactic scenes here. And then, you know, for order, when we uh, 
you know, it just keeps going up and up, climbing the ladder, man. Like there is no, uh, no steady, uh, steady Hogwarts Express. We're just, you know, we're about to hit fifth gear here, so we're climbing up. But just a couple more quick announcements. We actually did um, last week. Last week, actually, uh, which is really cool. Uh, made a quick appearance on. It's called. Um, I wouldn't watch this podcast. Uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, they're actually a podcast over in Liverpool, England, that reached out to us because they review. Their biggest thing is they just do an hour episode movie reviews over there. So they do a lot of stuff really kind of like in the know sort of thing, like what's popular at the time. And what happened was, you know, I guess because around the holidays, you know, people started streaming Harry Potter that just showed up on that Peacock streaming I guess service and a lot of people started asking about it and of course they saw that we're starting to really get recognized for it so uh, they reached out to us and uh, I provided it was like just a, a quick quick segment there but I got to give my thoughts on Prisoner of Azkaban which is one of my favorites I know it's one of your favorites so that was pretty cool and speaking of Prisoner of Azkaban yeah you guys took it to another level man Prisoner of Azkaban uh, part three for us is now our number one downloaded episode of all time. Uh, so yeah, cheers to the HP train. Uh, we're going to keep it rolling. Uh, just like Johnny Cash says, and this train keeps it rolling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think and, that's uh, I'll let you take it away, man. But um, just once again, big shout out to all the fans out there. And, and you know, another thing, we just hit another, we hit over 500 five-star reviews that we have in one year that's really impressive to do um so once again guys you know follow us on instagram uh at official ridiculous patronus you can follow you know at j nelly at rbrow129 follow us on facebook at uh official ridiculous patronus there at chasing josh factor fantasy uh shoot a spell at that subscribe button man hit that like button that's what we want to see you guys do and with that i'm gonna let our own Jay Nelly on his book here today. We are starting the fire. We are in this thing to win it now. There is no turning back, and I'm going to let him kick us off today. You got it. That, that's, that needs no other introduction. I, I say we just jump on into it. Let's get a quick little Malice in the Chalice for uh, one of these bad boys. Cheers, my man. Malice in the Chalice, baby. Yeah, Let's do this thing. Jay Nelly on a side note was... This morning, he was like, man, are we going to have to, this episode going to have to come out late because I, you know, I put in my GPS Starbucks and of course I clicked the closest one and it took me to a hotel. So I go in this hotel and I'm like looking around and they're like, yeah, no, like we make Starbucks here. <laughs> like there is no Starbucks. So wound up going the opposite direction. Jay Nelly got me back on track. So with that, you know, I'll let him get us back on track with this Goblet of Fire. Let's get it started. Let's do it, my man. Let's start right up with Chapter 29, The Dream. Uh, the first, really the first page, page 564, we kind of get a foreshadow and an impact moment right in the first paragraph. Because what does Hermione say? She says, it comes down to this, said Hermione, rubbing her forehead. Either Mr. Crouch attacked Victor or somebody else attacked both of them when Victor wasn't looking. 
So that, right away, like, because remember when we left off with uh, the madness of Mr. Crouch, that was when he had come through uh, the Hogwarts through the Forbidden Forest. He was kind of crazy. He was looking to speak to Dumbledore and all that. And Harry kind of left Victor Crumb with him to go get Dumbledore. They came back. It was too late. Uh, Mr. Crouch was gone. Ms., uh, Crumb was, like, like un- unconscious on the ground. So that's kind of where we left off last week and we're picking back up. And now we're already starting to see uh, Harry, Ron, and Hermione are trying to piece the puzzle together and come up with like potential you know solutions of what happened during this time and like what i think is kind of cool is we gotta keep in mind these are 14 year old kids they're 14 year old kids like investigating like the disappearance of a ministry official like (laughs) what like you're supposed to be worried about like your schoolwork and you're worried about like the disappearance of a ministry official so big moment there Uh, on page 565 just the third paragraph uh, what Harry says, because they're talking about what Mr. Crouch said to them when he was there. He said, I've told you he wasn't making much sense, said Harry. He said he wanted to warn Dumbledore about something. He definitely mentioned Bertha Jorkins, and he seemed to think she was dead. And he kept saying stuff was his fault, and he mentioned his son. That again, big moment there. Also a foreshadow. It, like Together. You know, see, a lot of what's going to happen today, guys, is as we're going through this is a lot of impact moments are going to double as foreshadowed events too. So it's like almost tackling two of the things we do at once. You know, we get into our favorite moments, foreshadowed events, plot holes, uh, interesting facts, and for next week we'll do the magical creatures and make the, the full round five. But with it coming towards the end of the book and everything coming together, a lot of the foreshadowed and favorite moments mesh as you're starting to see here just right off. And then on page 568... I'm going to go ahead and, and read a little bit of a, an excerpt that I think is really important. Uh, so right here, we're talking about them about to send a letter to Sirius of what, everything that's going on. Then they also meet some of my favorite guys, Fred and George, up there. And they're up to something that we're not quite sure what it is yet. So uh, we, we go ahead and start talking about, let's see here. So we're talking about the blackmail. He said, well, don't let us hold you up, said Fred, mock bowing point at the door, and Ron didn't move. Who are you blackmailing, he said. The grin vanished from Fred's face, and Harry saw George half glance at Fred before smiling. He said, don't be stupid. I was only joking. And he said, it didn't sound like it. <laughs> so Fred and George looked at each other, and Fred said roughly, I've told you before, Ron. Keep your nose out if you like to keep the shape that it is. But I can't see why you would. And Ron interrupts him and said, hey, it's my business if you're blackmailing someone. George is right. You can get up in serious for trouble for that. And George responds to Ron and says, I told you, I was joking. He said, walking over to Fred, pulled the letter out of his hands, and he began attaching it to the leg of the nearest barn owl. You're starting to sound like a bit like our old dear brother Percy, Ron. Carry on like this, and you'll be made a prefect. And he screams, no, I won't, which is important because that's kind of a foreshadow, too, about Ron and that there. So with that, those points, I'm going to turn it over to you to take a couple from there, and we'll just keep bouncing until we get to the, the third task. Yeah, uh, going off from that point, um, one of the biggest things I do have uh, as far as, did you want to read the letter from Sirius? Did you want to read that? I was going to let you have that part because that's... Yeah, yeah, there's a couple pages. I got a couple things before I have that there. Um, I didn't know if you had anything before where I just left off in the letter. So I've got a couple things between that that little foreshadow of Ron and the prefect and uh, and Sirius's letter. So... Um, yeah, I'll read, yeah, I'll I'll read this here. It, yeah. So going off here, I'm going to go ahead and uh, start with a little, a little 
dialogue between Mad-Eye Moody and Harry on page 570. So Harry asks uh, Mad-Eye Moody if, if you found him, meaning Mr. Crouch. Because remember, if Mad-Eye Moody had taken Harry's map after Harry had saw Mr. Crouch, who he thinks is Mr. Crouch, in Snape's office a couple episodes back. So uh, then also when we were talking about what he did with Victor Crumb outside the Forbidden Forest, he's wondering if he was able to find him there either. So there's two instances where Mr. Crouch has showed up that Mad-Eye Moody, he's thinking, you know, him being a good orer and one of the most skilled wizards when it comes to combat, he's asking, he's thinking, hey, did, did you find him? Like, what do we, what do we, we got, what do we know? And so Mr. Moody says no. He walked over to his desk. He said, did you use the map? Of course, said Moody, taking a swig from his flask. Took a leaf out of your book, Potter. I summoned it from my office into the forest, and he wasn't anywhere on there. So he did disapparate, said Ron. You can't disapparate on the grounds, Ron. There are other ways he could have disappeared, aren't there? And Moody's magical eye quivered as it rested on Hermione. You're another one who might want to think about a career as an auror. So that's not that that's a big foreshadow there, but Hermione, if you guys remember, she goes on to uh, work in the capacity with the ministry. So I thought... It's interesting she's getting this information, and, and remember he told Harry he'd be a good or too, but like considering what we know from being reading the end of the book, who it's coming from, it's just really ironic. So I thought that's uh, I thought that was pretty cool. But yes, I will go ahead and read Sirius's letter, and then I'll pass it over to you. Sirius's letter reads, Harry, what do you think you're playing at walking off into the forest of Victor Crumb? I want you to swear by return owl that you are not going to go walking with anyone else at night. There is somebody highly dangerous at Hogwarts. It's clear to me that they wanted to stop Crouch from seeing Dumbledore, and you were probably feet away from them in the dark. You could have been killed. Your name didn't get into the Goblet of Fire by accident. If someone's trying to attack you, they're on their last chance. Stay close to Ron and Hermione. Do not leave Gryffindor Tower after hours and arm yourself for the third task. Practice stunning and disarming. A few hexes wouldn't go amiss either. There's nothing you can do about Crouch. Keep your head down and look after yourself. I'm waiting for your letter. Give me your word that you won't stray out of bounds again. Serious. And with that, I'll take it over to you. Yeah, man. Um, by the way, real quick, we I actually got some cool new visuals I forgot to mention here. Yeah. Um, so on the left, what's really cool. So for all you guys that are listening on the podcast, but if you're watching on the YouTube, on the left side here, I got a book that looks a little bit different. It's a little bit smaller, a little bit more orange. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, my parents surprised me actually uh, over Christmas this year. Really shocked, I opened up the box and there was a picture of Dobby in it in a frame. And I was like, mom, why would you get me like a picture of Dobby? That's interesting. But then it was like a joke because I opened it under it and it was all the Harry Potters in the UK edition. So that was really cool. So uh, I still have, you know, the classic original American version on the right, which is what, uh, you know, I've grown up with. So sentimental to me being the American version. But uh, on the left side here, this is actually the UK version of the Goblet of Fire. So that's pretty cool. Um, I'm still carrying my Diggory wand for these, uh, you know, these big episodes here right now. But what was cool was I did get a new wand actually over uh, Christmas, so that was pretty awesome. And as I told you guys, you know, my Patronus is a grass snake, so I don't know if you guys can see this because I speak in Postle tongue, but the actually actual handle 
is a snake. So uh, it actually won't fit on like a wall hanger or anything because it curves all the way down to the handle. So I'll save that one for later. But uh, the next thing I had that really stuck out to me, speaking of wands and and spells, right, is actually curses. So Hermione suggests to Harry that he starts practicing hexes for the third task that's going to be coming up at some point. And so they start practicing the impediment curse. Uh, and she says, I like the look of this one, she said. This impediment curse should slow down anything trying to attack you. Yeah, so I thought that was really cool. Like, you know, you're finally starting to see Harry's, you know, starting to get a little ahead of himself on things versus waiting to the last minute to prepare for these tasks. Next thing I have here is, you know, Harry is falling asleep in Professor Trelawney's class again. And she starts making these predictions on Mars, um, which we'll save a lot of this for foreshadowing events. But this part was really cool. Like when he's sleeping, I thought, and it says he was riding on the back of an eagle owl soaring through the clear blue sky toward an old ivy covered house set high on the hillside. Lower and lower they flew, the wind blowing pleasantly in Harry's face until they reached a dark, broken window in the upper story of the house and entered. Now, they were flying along a gloomy passageway to a room at the very end through, through the door they went, into a dark room whose windows were boarded up. Harry had left the owl's back. He was watching. Now, as he fluttered across the room into a chair with its back to him, there were two dark shapes on the floor besides the chair. Both of them were stirring. One was a huge snake, speaking of snakes. The other was a man, a short, balding man, a man with wafering eyes and a painted nose. He was wheezing and sobbing on the hearth rug. You are in luck, Wormtail, said a cold, high-pitched voice from the depths of the chair in which the owl had landed. You are very fortunate indeed. Your blunder has not ruined everything. He is indeed. My lord, gasped the man on the floor. My lord, I was so pleased. I am so pleased and so sorry. Nagini, said the cold voice. You are out of luck. I will not be feeding Wormtail to you after all. But never mind, never mind. There is still Harry Potter. The snake hissed. Harry could see its tongue fluttering. Now Wormtail said the cold voice perhaps one more little reminder why i will not tolerate another blunder from you my lord no i beg you the tip of his wand emerged from around the back of the chair it was pointing at wormtail crucio said the cold voice wormtail screamed screamed as though every nerve in his body were on fire the screaming filled harry's ears as a scar on his forehead seared with pain he was yelling too voldemort would hear him would know he was there. Harry! Harry! Harry opened his eyes and he was lying on the floor of, floor of Professor Trelawney's room with his hands over his face. So I hate to bring up foreshadowing events this early, but it's just so significant for how it's going to play a role in these interesting facts coming up. I feel like that's something we do have to bring up. Like, I don't like bringing up foreshadowing events early. Uh, for spoilers or anything, but that plays a pretty significant role. And with that, I'll turn it on back to you, man. Yeah, I mean, we like we said a little bit earlier when we started this episode, like this between this episode and next week's episode, a lot of the favorite moments and impact moments are going to double as foreshadowing events. So like, it's not something right. that they're going to be mutually exclusive from each other, like it has been through our past episodes. So it's not, yeah, like it, it, there are things that 
if we skip out on them now and bring them up later on, it's like we're backtracking on ourselves. So these are things that kind of double as both flavor moments and first out events, which is great. And one thing I wanted to touch on too with the spells is Harry was learning a couple different ones. You know, the first one they were talking about was the stunning spell, which we come to know later as stupefy. It's a stunning spell. It's, um, you know, what I would say it's similar to like that Petrific Totalis where it's a total body bind, but it basically knocks you unconscious for a certain amount of time. Now, the other one that you were talking about, the impediment curse, what that does, that slows down anything that's trying to attack you. So basically it makes it kind of go in slow motion uh, until the, the curse subsides, which the length of it depends on your power as a wizard. So I thought that was pretty cool to touch on. But yeah, awesome job with the dream there uh, in divination class. Because that, that whole dream was a big foreshadow, like you mentioned, right? Um, right. And, like, you know, it was cool, too, because afterwards, like, Professor Trelawney was kind of trying to bug Harry to, hey, tell me what you saw. <laughs> I've got a bunch of experience in these matters. Harry, what did you see? And what's really hilarious is it's not, it's not so much that he saw the future, but he saw what's going on in the present time in another location, which is still, it's like, super right. useful. Like, you know, but it's funny how like he's better at her job in her own classroom. <laughs> like, I, thought, right, exactly. I thought that was just something funny. <laughs> that was awesome to do. But uh, uh, he ends up saying that he's going to go to the hospital, and, he's, and he decides, "Yo, I'm going straight to Dumbledore." So I'm taking serious advice. I'm going straight to Dumbledore. He gets to yeah. Dumbledore's office, and like I, I thought it was kind of funny. He like remember back in uh, Sorcerer's Stone, <laughs> he password. was trying. Yeah, exactly. The password. He. Like, he knew the password there. He, he obviously was going to change from year to year. And he didn't know it. He starts listing off a bunch of password names. And then, like, finally he just guesses out of the random blue cockroach cluster, <laughs> which is the password in year four for Dumbledore's office. And he, he's able to enter there. Now, the next thing that I have that's really important, and it talks a little bit about, uh, like, like Cornelius Fudge. We're going to start to see his incompetencies as a minister. You know, he's, he starts jumping into some wild conclusions. Like he does, his brain doesn't think right. It's almost like he doesn't want to, ex to accept what happens, which is exactly what happens. We'll talk about more next week. But with this one here, just where we're at, on, on page 579, Cornelius Fudge is telling Dumbledore he doesn't see the connections between the disappearances of Bertha Jorkins and Mr. Crouch. He says, Dumbledore, I'm afraid I don't see the connection. Don't see it at all. It was a voice of Minister of Magic Cornelius Fudge. Ludo says Bertha is perfectly capable of getting herself lost. I agree. We would have expected to have found her by now, but all the same, I see no evidence of foul play, Dumbledore. None at all. And as for her disappearance being linked with Barty Crouch's, and then Moody kind of cuts him off and says, and what do you think happened to Barty Crouch, Minister? I see two possibilities, Alistair. Either Crouch is finally cracked, which is more than likely. I'm sure you'll agree, giving his personal history. Lost his mind and gone wandering off somewhere. And then he, he started going off on that, and Dumbledore cuts him off. He's like, if that's the case, Cornelius, uh, he wandered extremely quickly. Or else, well, Fudge sounded embarrassed. Well, I'll reserve judgment for, for, until after I've seen the place where he was found. But you say it was just past Bo Benton's carriage, Dumbledore. You know what that woman is? He's already starting to be prejudiced towards, you know, because we're talking about Madame Maxime here. You know, we know what she is in terms of, uh, you know, her heritage, I'll, I'll say. And, she, and right. Dumbledore replies to him very the way you'd ever want to reply. He says, "I considered her to be a very able headmistress and an excellent dancer." Dumbledore, come," said Fudge angrily. "Don't you think you might be prejudiced in her favor because of Hagrid? They don't all turn out harmless, if indeed you can call Hagrid himself harmless with the monster's fixation that he's got. I suspect Madame Maxime 
No more than Hagrid, said Dumbledore just as calmly. I think it is possible that it is you who are prejudiced, Cornelius. So I just thought that was important because we're starting to see the dangers of your own thoughts and your own bias against things and how that can affect the way you think rationally in tough situations like this. Because Barty Crouch, he was one of the best dark wizard capturers of his time. And, you know, Cornelius Fudge is basically saying it's more likely that someone with a sharp mind and as prepared and as capable as Mr. Crouch is, it's more likely that he went insane than the disappearances have something to do with each other, Bertha Jorkins and him. And then even going as far as to try to put the blame on Madame Maxime like because she's part giant, like... Like it just it shows a lot of uh, a lot of character flaws in Cornelius Fudge, which come to play a lot more later on. And with that, Chase, I'll give it back to you to uh, take us into the Pensieve. Yeah, man. Uh, speaking of Cornelius Fudge, like you were saying, I think this book is really when he starts to. I hate to say this, but piss a lot of people off. Like, uh, I, I really this book is when you kind of start to see you know double Dumbledore show his power at parts where it whereas you know he's usually super calm um tries to be passive about subjects but Cornelius Fudge like he overlooks some very huge elements I would say and you'll see throughout this book as we're really starting to get to the climax here this is when you start to see you know Dumbledore puts puts forth this power because it, it gets to a point where he just can't let anything be passive anymore about it uh but from that point uh, kind of feeding off going back to the passwords real quick you know I always write down the passwords <laughs> so I thought they were cool just to throw the passwords out there that Harry went through this will kind of you know bring back some of those reminiscent memories for you but he said the first one was Sherbert Lemon <laughs> that McGonagall said in like the film, ironically, uh, back in, I think that was Chamber of Secrets. Um, yeah, Chamber of Secrets. But then he said Pear Drop, Licorice Wand, Fizby Wisby, Dobby's Best Blowing Gum, Birdie Bots, Every Flavored Beans, Chocolate Frog, Sugar Quill, and then he lands on Cockroach Cluster. <laughs> so I thought that was really cool. Uh, just a really fun, interesting moment there. Um, you hit that conversation with you know Dumbledore and Fudge and and everyone right on the head there. So from that point, um, and and then with Moody as well, with that point, I have kind of us diving into the Pensieve. Do you have anything else you want to jump in? Just the first part of the Pensieve, because it branches right off of what I was talking about with his prejudice against the Giants. Yeah. What Harry says, like, mm -hmm. Harry enters and tells Fudge that he didn't see Madame Maxime anywhere making Fudge look stupid. So, like, that's like, that, that's what I'll have there then. Right. Yeah, so take it from there, man. Yeah, we're in the Pensieve. We're in the Pensieve. Yeah, no, that was awesome. That's exactly what I had the first one, so you, you crushed it. Um, but then, <laughs> once again, here's, like, one of the big parts that I have of this is, once again, Dumbledore tells Harry, basically, don't touch anything. Like, don't do anything. Stay right here. He says... <laughs> He says, wait here for me, Harry. He said, our examination of the grounds will not take long. If someone tells me that, am I just going to go walking through their office, picking out whatever I want? 
If I'm in like the highest of the highest person's office, even if I do know them on a personal level, you don't even go through your like dad's personal belongings just because you feel like it. Like, why would you go through digging through someone else's garbage? <laughs> it's not garbage, but this is why he always finds himself in these situations. And like to this point, like I was saying, like where Dumbledore shows some backbone, he's nice to Harry, but I think he kind of gets gives off a point like that wasn't cool. Like you just kind of went snooping around my my junk here. Uh, so then from this point, you know, Harry sees that big bowl that's in Dumbledore's office. And it's so cool the way it's described. It says a shallow stone basin lay there with odd carvings around the edge ruins and symbols that harry did not recognize the silvery light was coming from the basin's contents which were unlike anything harry had ever seen before he could not tell whether the sub substance was liquid or gas it was a bright whitish silver and it was moving ceaselessly the surface of it became ruffled the water beneath the wind and then like clouds separated the swirled uh, swirled liquid smoothly it looked like light made liquid or like wind made solid Harry couldn't make up his mind he wanted to touch it to find out what it felt like but nearly four years experience of the magical world told him that sticking his wand into the bowl full of the same unknown substance was a very stupid thing to do he therefore pulled his wand out of the inside of his robes, cast a nervous look around the office, looked back at the contents of the basins, and prodded them. So what does he do anyways? Fights with that devil on my shoulder. Lord is my witness. <laughs> yeah, and does it anyways. Way to go, Harry. Good stuff, man. You officially know how to piss off everyone. <laughs> uh, another thing about this, like... So I thought it was cool the way the movie showed this because I watched the movie last night, but it was kind of at the same time, like not to just rag on the movie because I know we do that a lot, but it's like in this, like when Harry discovers this in this book, not to bring up a whole bunch of di differences now, but he's like kind of like being that curious guy in his office, right? And he's kind of looking for this. In the movie, they have this massive like wardrobe thing that is just sitting in it's like pure in gold so like anyone that walked into that office would be like what is the chronicles of narnia doing in your office man i'm definitely taking a spot in that wardrobe so yeah that was just like one thing i was like i don't think this was really done right uh, and then the last one here i'll shoot it back over to you is uh when he sees like the room of liquid that i mentioned so, like, he, like, bends closer and gets to that cabinet. Like I was kind of mentioning, it shows in the movie. And it says, a silvery substance became transparent. It looked like glass. He looked down into it, expecting to see the stone bottom of the basin, and saw instead an enormous room below the surface of the mysterious substance, a room into which he seemed to be looking through, a circular window in the ceiling. The room was dimly lit. He thought he might even be underground, for there were no windows, merely torches in, in brackets such as the ones that illuminated the walls of Hogwarts. Lowering his face so that his nose was a mere inch away from the glassy substance, Harry saw the rows and rows of witches and wizards were seated around every wall. 
what seemed to be benches rising on levels. An empty chair stood in the very center of the room, and there was something about the chair that gave Harry an ominous feeling. Encircled in the arms of it, chains encircled in the arms of it as though its occupants were usually tied to it. So instantly we kind of get this feeling like, like, what are we watching here? We're not about to be watching something good happen. And the big thing that stuck out to me here, how cool is that? Like the benches rising. I almost think of like a football stadium, but you could you imagine like almost like the rising benches, almost like elevators that like keep going higher and higher every time more people go in. So I just pictured like, this isn't the way it described it, but in my mind I was like, what if they could fit as many people in there for that trial that they wanted? So like they just keep rising and rising these like bench levels. So I thought it was cool and I'll shoot it back over to you, Jay Nelly. For sure. And right before we like we talk about the description of the Pensy that you did and, and up to the point where you left off, there was one thing I wanted to touch on just a couple pages back. Uh, that's like the sort of Gryffindor being hung in, in uh, Dumbledore's office. So yeah. I just want to read that little paragraph real quick. It says, he felt much calmer somehow now that he was in Dumbledore's office, knowing that he would shortly be telling him about the dream. Harry looked up at the wall behind the desk. The patched and ragged sorting hat was standing on a shelf. A glass case next to it held a magnificent silver sword with large rubies set into the hilt, which Harry recognized as the one he himself had pulled out of the sorting hat in his second year. The sword had once belonged to Godric Gryffindor, founder of Harry's house. He was gazing at it, remembering how it had come to his aid, when he had thought all hope was lost. Thought that was a good foreshadow moment there, and we know where it's located now, too, um, for things that come up way down the road. But anyways, now to get back into what we were talking about with uh, the Pensieve, uh, we'll talk about when he ends up getting inside of that. Yeah, so uh, he the, the basin being circular in the room he was observing the square Harry could not make out what was going on in the corners of it so he leaned in closer tilting his head trying to see the tip of his nose touched the strange substance in which he was staring then all of a sudden Dumbledore's office gives an almighty lurch and Harry was thrown forward and pitched headfirst into the substance inside the basin but his head did not hit the stone bottom he was falling through some icy cold and black it was like being sucked into a dark whirlpool and suddenly Harry found himself sitting on a bench at the end of the room inside the basin a bench raised high above the others. He looked up at the stone ceiling, expecting to see the circular window which he had just been staring through which he had just been staring, but there was nothing but dark, solid stone. And so breathing hard and fast, he looked around, and not one of the witches and wizards in the room were looking at him. They didn't seem to notice that a 14-year-old boy had just dropped from the ceiling into their midst. And he turned to the wizard next to him on the bench and uttered a loud cry of surprise because he ended up sitting, sitting right next to Albus Dumbledore. And... So Harry tries to get Dumbledore's attention, like puts his hand and waves it in front of his face. And all of a sudden, you kind of get this similar feeling as to when in Chamber of Secrets, when Harry was reading the Tom Riddle's diary and ended up getting sucked in when he saw like Hagrid with Aragog uh, and the, the events that led Hagrid to get expelled. He's, he's in a memory, right? That's what it was in the diary. Tom Riddle showed him everything that happened there. Harry kind of gets that same sort of feeling like, okay, like I know that... Dumbledore is not going to ignore my hand waving in front of his face. I'm clearly not in the present time. He's, but what is cool is it does characterize Dumbledore as looking much the same as he does in the present day. Where, remember in the diary, 
Dumbledore looked much younger without like silver hair. He was like still had like some brown in it. He looked, you know, but that again, that was 54 years ago at this point. So I thought that was pretty cool. Talking a little bit about um, the, the the trial here, it's actually Karkaroff that's on trial, which is interrogated by Mr. Crouch. And what I thought was cool too is as of this trial, Mad-Eye Moody still had two normal eyes. So remember he was someone who, you know, he got into a battle, lost one of his eyes, and it got replaced with that big magical eye that we've come to know throughout the book. Right here on this trial for Kakarov, however many years ago it was, he still had his two normal eyes. But we do find out the chunk of his nose missing uh, because of the names that Kakarov gives up. And so I think that's what I wanted to jump into next is the names that Kakarov gives up before I... Uh, well, I'll do I'll do the three trials and I'll get it back to you here, because I've described bullet points on these. Kakarov he gives up Antonin Dolohov, Evan Rosier, and he was the one who took the chunk out of Moody's nose. Evan Rosier was uh, Travers. He's the person who helped murder the McKinnons. Mulkyber, who specializes in the Imperius Curse. Augustus Rookwood, he was a spy who gave Voldemort information from inside the Ministry itself, and Severus Snape. Now remember. For Harry, at this point, we all know because we've watched Harry Potter and we've read Harry Potter growing up, but if you're reading it for the first time, Harry himself does not know that Snape was a Death Eater until this point. So that's a huge reveal for him, because he's had these weird feelings about Snape ever since he stepped foot in Hogwarts that Snape's got it out for him, you know, he hates him, wants, wants Harry dead, never been able to prove it. Now, now we get to this big revelation that well, Snape was a Death Eater, which is a close follower, supporter of Lord Voldemort. So, big reveal there. The other one too, Augustus Rookwood, he comes up later on. But you can see the stretch of Voldemort's power. He had people inside the Ministry, which is kind of a foreshadow for what happens later on too. Uh, infiltrating and providing very valuable information. And that kind of leads into the second trial that it, the dream forms into with Ludo Bagman on trial. Because Ludo Bagman was the one who was friends with Rookwood, and he was telling Rookwood these things, thinking Rookwood was on their side. He had no idea, of course, that Rookwood was working for Voldemort. But basically, essentially, he was using Bagman's information to spread to Voldemort. So, and this is this, this page 591 when Ludo Bagman's on trial. Rita Skeeta's in attendance, and that comes full. This is a full circle moment because you guys remember what uh, Rita Skeeta said to Hermione a couple episodes back. I know stories about Ludo Bagman that would make even your hair curl, not that it needs it. So that comes full circle. This is what Rita Skeeter was talking about, him being on trial, being accused of being a Death Eater, right? Now, obviously, that went to a vote, and uh, <laughs> they all they all love Ludo Bagman. So like, not one single person voted for him to go to Azkaban because like he was an international <laughs> like beater. Like he was still in his prime, like fit, muscular, like smiley, like jovial, like you know everyone just really liked him. You know, so he didn't have any really issues about wondering if he was going to go to Azkaban because no one thought it. And then like even one of the witches like brings up what he did in Quidditch and Mr. Crouch like loses his mind. He's like, this is a trial. <laughs> this is a trial. So I thought, a trial. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. And then, but why it's important is because it shows us how Voldemort can get information from people inside the ministry. And when he was giving Rookwood this information, Rookwood was telling Bagman at the time that 
oh, like he would be able to get, after his playing days are done, he would be able to get him a job at the ministry. And Mr. Crouch says it would be a very sad day indeed if Ludo Bagman ever joined us, which is kind of a foreshadow because what does Ludo Bagman do now? He works for the Department of Magical Sports and Games. So that came around full circle anyways. And then it takes us into the big trial here, which actually kind of has me perplexed. I'm going to do a little more research on this. But four people come into the room now. Four prisoners enter. Obviously, we learn about, you know, because he keeps screaming father and crying father. So one of them is obviously Mr. Crouch's son. And then, you know, you, you learn from just how she's described and knowing, you know, who she is and what she says at the end before they take them, you know, away from that room. And it says, like, the Dark Lord will rise again, more powerful. Well, we read that. But long story short, is Bellatrix Lestrange and her husband. So that's three of them. It's the fourth person that's a mystery. Don't know who the fourth person is. It's this fourth Death Eater. And especially when he starts naming off the Death Eaters that are in Azkaban or the ones that have died off. Like to foreshadow what happens later on in this in this episode that we'll tackle, it just seems that fourth person never gets mentioned. So that's something really really important there. But uh, this is where we learn that they're on trial for performing the Cruciatus Curse on Frank and Alice Longbottom until they were driven to insanity. Now we know that Neville has been raised by his grandmother. We never knew the full extent of why. Well, now we know. Death Eaters tortured them until they lost their minds. Like, they don't, like, you know, when Dumbledore tells them later on, they don't even recognize who Neville is anymore. It's really sad. Um, but we, what I also found really eerie is, remember earlier in this book, Mad-Eye Moody was talking to Neville about the Cruciatus Curse. And if you think about where this goes and who, who people turn out to be, it's crazy that the person trying to comfort Neville was some... I don't want to get ahead of it, but, like, there's, there's someone's on trial for a reason. That's all I'll say there. Uh, but what they thought... They, the reason why they tortured the long bombs, it wasn't just mindless torture. It's because they thought that Frank knew the whereabouts of where broken Voldemort was. Like, when, when, when Voldemort killed Harry and or tried to kill Harry... And the cursory bounded upon him, and, he, and like his body was broken, he was just like a spirit. Like there was whispers, like of where like Voldemort's spirit led, fled to, and so they thought that Frank Longbottom, being a very talented Auror, knew the whereabouts of where they thought Voldemort was because they wanted to help return him to power, and so they thought by torturing him that they'd get the information out of him. They didn't get the information out of him, so then they tried to torture his wife to get the information out of him. And they tortured them both into insanity because they were planning to restore Voldemort to power. So then the last sentence I'll read before I turn it back over to Chase here is, is going to be the one from Bellatrix Lestrange. Uh, what she ends up saying at the end of the chapter here. Um, let's see. Where it went to. She goes... Let's see. I, I closed my book on accident. <laughs> But um, you're talking about the foreshadowing. I'm talking there? about yeah, what she yeah, what she says. Um, where are we are at? There you go. Yeah, there we go. Dementors started gliding back in the room. The boys' three companions rose quietly from their seats. The woman with the heavy-lidded eyes looked up at Crouch and called, "The Dark Lord will rise again, Crouch. Throw us into Azkaban. We will wait. He will rise again and will come for us." 
He will reward us beyond any of his other supporters. We alone were faithful. We alone tried to find him. So that was some pretty powerful words from Bellatrix Lestrange. Also, as you just pointed out, Jay, it's a big foreshadowed moment too. And with that, I'll turn it over to you to tackle what you got next. Yeah, I mean, um, I just want to touch on those a little bit because here's the thing. Like, especially, I know we kind of save a lot of differences between the movie and the book uh, for our episode we'll get into in a couple weeks from now. But the big thing I want to dive into here is getting the point across about how really, like, cruel this was of Crouch. In the movie, they kind of make it like Crouch was being super sympathetic, and, like, the boy on trial was, like, a lunatic. Like, he was, I don't know why, but he was licking his tongue like the toad from X-Men. Like, he was like, yeah, daddy. It was like, it made no sense to me. Like, really what this does is it shows how cruel. Crouch has no sympathy for anybody, and I'm just going to touch on a couple things here that I do want to read just to kind of start off by getting his point across by with Bagman and Crouch because it shows how he's just like, oh, despicable. Like, doesn't care who it is, man. Um, so when they're on trial, right, of course, like, one big thing that I noticed was it said 200 witches and wizards were at this thing. Like, this is massive. For anyone that's like, imagining this like this is the casey anthony of trials that is going on right now like everyone that wants to be anyone is at this thing like these people on trial chained up have told him they work at universal or nickelodeon just like she did they investigated it that's not what happened so now everyone's freaking out well of course so you know harry watched as of course the three entered the room and it says even before Harry could reach any conclusions about the place in which they were, he heard footsteps and the door in the corner of the dungeon opened and then the people entered, or at least one man flanked by two dementors. Like that like you were saying, that is downright terrifying. Like if that doesn't tell you these people are like already screwed, that's like when you get a ticket and the cops questioning you and then you look in your back rearview mirror and four cop cars are there. Like you're getting something. Well, he's like, he's, he's something. already been in Azkaban though, so like it's worse than that. It's almost like you're getting sentenced to death. Like, like, like the, like, yeah. you know, like the electric chair. That's almost what it reminded me of. It's like that chair is where you listen to figure out, you know, if you spend your rest of your life in the prison or if you know you can be helpful and get yourself out of trouble. <laughs> like that's like that's where you figure out your fate, man. That, that's the chair of fate, baby. I'm gonna name it the chair of fate. <laughs> yeah, this it's just. Like, what's the point of even doing a trial at that point? Like, I mean, well, because well, one person. Well, yeah, Kakarov did his thing. That's why. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah. also for Little Bagman, too. Like, both, that's what I was like, thinking. Yeah, both of them, Bagman, honestly, right? both of them got out of it, right? Like, yeah. And uh, one thing I wanted to say, too, is like, as this thing is starting to go on, this is where you kind of have that full circle moment of Moody. Like, remember when he had that moment a couple episodes ago where he was basically said something on the lines of, oh, you would know that, Al. <laughs> you would yeah. know that, Kakarot. Or you would know something like that. And this is why, and, like, as this is going on, like, Moody is commenting back to Dumbledore. Like, he's sitting next to him, and he's like, ugh, filth. <laughs> and then he even brings up, he says, yeah, he prod probably made a deal with Crouch. He said, Crouch is going to let him out. 
Moody breathed quietly to Dumbledore. He's done a deal with him. Took me six months to track him down, and Crouch is going to let him go if he's got enough new names. Let's hear his information. I say we throw him straight back in with the Dementors. <laughs> like, Moody does not care. He don't man. care, man. <laughs> like, not care at all. Um, and this is where I wanted to kind of bring up... You, you hit that nail on the head with, like, who he gave away, but uh, when, of course... Bagman jumps in there as I thought this part was <laughs> like you gotta give the guy credit too cause he kinda reminded me of like a salesman like yeah. the way he sold it like he kinda bought me on this thing almost like I don't believe him as far as I can see him right but he kinda bought me like he said so of course he shows up like in his it said he was in the height of his quidditch days muscular walked around just plops down in that chain chair like here we go excuse my language i'm the s-h-i-t that's literally what he did so it says ludo bagman you have been brought here in front of the council of magical law to answer charges relating to the activities of death eaters said mr crouch we have heard the evidence against you and are about to reach our verdict do you have anything to add to your testimony about we pronounce before we pronounce judgment and then bagman goes this is when bagman is like being accused of passing information to voldemort supporters of course so just so i have that clear before this part he goes ludvok bagman you were caught passing information to lord voldemort supporters said mr crouch for this i suggest a term of imprisonment in azkaban lasting no less than and this is when bagman starts to claim his innocence he goes He's like has all these people in the crowd of us that are raising their hands. They're like, none at all. <laughs> but I, he goes, but I've told you, I have no idea. None at all. It never crossed my mind. He was with, you know, you know who. I thought, I thought I was collecting information for our side. And Rockwood, well, he kept talking about getting me a job in the ministry. I mean, one of my, when my Quidditch days were over, you know, I mean, I, I can't keep hitting get get hitting get hit by bludgers for the rest of my life can i i'll be put for the vote i'll be put for the vote said crouch like just pissed off coldly he turned to the right hand side of the a dungeon the jury please raise their hands those in favor of imprisonment harry looked toward the right hand side of the dungeon not one person raised their hand Many of the witches and wizards around the walls began to clap. And of the witches, the jury stand up and crowd. Yes! We'd just like to congratulate Mr. Bagman on his splendid performance for England in the Quidditch match <laughs> against Turkey last Saturday. <laughs> like, can you believe what's happening right now? Like, this is the trial among trials. And the suspect that's being brought in, which if you have any reason to suspect someone... They should be in deep, deep, you know, what at the moment. So, like, there's no one that should be clapping for you by all means. He should be being looked at like the Aaron Hernandez case <laughs> that happened, right? And Crouch just goes, despicable. And then spat at Dumbledore, sitting down as Bagman walked out of the dungeon. Rockwood, and this is Moody, he's like, Rockwood got him a job. The day Ludo Bagman joins us, he'll be sad. A sad day for the ministry, which is a very 
you know, foreshadowing moment, not to give anything away, right? Even though we kind of know that. <laughs> and uh, I you already know, said it. You know, you to, <laughs> yeah, even though everyone knows, right? I already, so, I, I already, already said it. I said, yeah, it was a foreshadow for what yeah. is that now. But. Um, and then just this last one, I'm going to turn it back over to you, um, just because this is a, that powerful moment where I was trying to get a point across where it's way different than the movie. Because this scene to me, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll kind of paraphrase it, but, um, well, I do want to get into it because it really kind of tears you up. Like, who would do this to their child? Like, have no no remorse, man. No mercy. Nah. Nah. You can't die yet. <laughs> so he says, this is when the long bottoms come in. And he goes, you have been brought before the Council of Magical Law, he said clearly, so that we may pass judgment on you for a crime so heinous. Father, said the boy with the straw-colored hair, Father, please, that we have rarely heard the like of within this court, said Crouch, speaking more loudly, drowning out his son's voice. We have heard the evidence against you. The four of you stand accused of capturing Aurora Frank Longbottom and subjecting him to the Cruciatus Curse, believing him to have the knowledge of present whereabouts of your exiled master, he who must not be named. Father, I didn't! Shrieked the boy in chains below. I didn't! I swear it, Father! Don't send me back to the Dementor! You are further accused, bellow Mr. Crouch. Of using the Cruciatus curse on Frank Longbottom's wife when he would not give you information. You plan to restore he who must not be named to power and to resume the lives of violence you presumably led while he was strong. I know, I know the jury. Mother, stop, stop it, mother. I didn't do it. I, it wasn't me. I now ask the jury, shouted Mr. Crouch. To raise their hands if they believe, as I do, that these crimes dissolve a life, deserve a life sentence in Azkaban. In unison, the witches and wizards along the right side of the dungeon raised their hand. The crowd around the walls began to clap, as it were for Bagman. Their faces full of savage and triumph as the boy began to scream, No! Mother, no! I didn't do it! I didn't know! Don't send me there! Don't! Don't! Don't let him! The Dementors were gliding back into the room and the boy's three companions rose quietly from their seats. The woman with the heavy-lidded eyes looked up and Crouch called. And that's when you have your big quote from Bellatrix Lestrange. Yes, sir. Just like you said. But that's my point is like, that's messed up. And it even goes into, at this final, I'll skip down a little bit here. But he says again, I'm your son, screamed at Crouch. I'm your son! And he goes, you are no son of mine, <laughs> bellowed Mr. Crouch, his eyes bulging suddenly. I have no son. The wispy witch beside him gave a gape gasp, <gasps> slumped in her seat, and she had fainted. Crouch appeared not to have noticed. Take them away. Crouch roared at the Dementors, spit flying from his mouth. Take them away. May they rot there. Father, father. I wasn't involved. No, no, father, please. I think, I think, and then this is when, you know, Harry turns and then this is when Dumbledore, you hear this voice that says, I think Harry, 
It is time to return to my office, said a quiet voice in Harry's ear. Harry started, he looked around, and then he looked on his other side. There was Albus Dumbledore, sitting on his right, watching Crouch's son being dragged away by the Dementors, and there was an Albus Dumbledore on his left, looking right at him. Like, how messed up is that? Like, <laughs> that's your son. Um, and that's where I have a big problem with the movie, because it made it look like Crouch was, like, some nice guy. This dude had no remorse. Like, yeah, there was no win there. And with that, I'll turn it back over to you, man. Yeah, so, uh, talking about... Now you said Dumbledore pulled Harry out of the Pensieve. Uh, we'll talk about ex- Dumbledore explaining how to use the Pensieve. So, like, what basically... What Harry says, he says, you mean this stuff is your thoughts? Harry said, staring at the swirling white substance in the basin. Certainly, said Dumbledore. Let me show you. And Dumbledore drew out his wand from the inside of his robes. I'll, I'll, do, I'll, I'll do a little demonstration for you guys on screen here. I got my wand in my hand. He said, he said drew out his wand off the inside of his robes, placed a tip and it's on his own silver hair near his temple. And when he took the wand away, his hair seemed to be clinging to it. But then... Harry saw that it was, in fact, a glistening strand of the same silvery white substance that filled the Pensieve, and Dumbledore added this fresh thought to the basin, and Harry astonished saw his own face swimming around the surface of the bowl. So I just thought it was pretty cool to show how the Pensieve works. You pull the thought out of your brain with the wand, you put it in the basin, and basically, it's a perfect memory, right? Because if you think back on mm-hmm. uh, your, your thought as a human, and we kind of talked about this in Westworld a little bit, Humans' rem- memories are fragmented. They're not a perfect replica picture. Well, this is a way to preserve that memory as clear as day because you're taking it right out of there, put it in the bin, and then that there it is. Like, it's not going to move. It doesn't change. Like, it's an exact replica of what happened. So, I thought that was yep. pretty big. Then, um, talking about Bertha Jorkins, too, uh, Dumbledore talks a little bit about... Uh, when he started mentioning, but why Bertha? Said Dumbledore sadly. Why did you like have to follow him in the first place? Bertha, Harry whispered, looking up at her. Is that Bertha Jorkins? Because this is another memory that he had pulled out of his thing, and that's what she was saying. Like it was almost like an echoing from a distance, like Bertha Jorkins telling Dumbledore about the situation. It was not an important situation, but what it did is it allowed you guys to see that Bertha Jorkins is really big into gossip, and that you know she's nosy, which kind of gets her into the position that she got in into in this book which you know ultimately led to you know what so um yeah that he said that was bertha as i remembered her at school and that going on a little bit further than that harry finally tells dumbledore all about the dream and divination so the, the dumbledore doesn't even look surprised because he actually knows that harry had that dream over the summer and harry asked him like well how, how do you know about that and he's like well you're not serious as only correspondent and we actually find out in that moment, too, that Dumbledore is actually the one that helped find that hiding spot for Sirius near Hogsmeade, up in that in that little uh, area in the caves up top. So that was pretty cool to learn that Dumbledore and Sirius have been communicating even outside the knowledge of Harry. So it's like, what are they planning together? Like, what do they talk about to try to keep Harry safe? Because it seems no matter what they do, though, he's always getting himself into trouble. And that's a problem I talked to you about. We'll mention a little bit later on. With Dumbledore, like all these things still end up happening to him. Like, like you would think the protection, you would think someone would be on Harry's guard night and day if you were a headmaster. Like, when all these things are happening, disappearances, and Harry's always somehow involved, like, you can't just let him, like, live a life like nothing's happening. Like, they're like, nah, Harry, go about your day, man. But 
anyways, I thought I thought that was really important. Um, now, in, in page six hundred, I want to uh, talk about why this this is a foreshadow, but also a big moment because Harry asks Dumbledore, "Do you know why my scar hurts me?" And Dumbledore looks very intently at Harry for a moment and then said, "I have a theory, no more than that, but it is my belief that your scar hurts both when Lord Voldemort is near you." And when he is feeling a particularly strong surge of hatred. And Harry asks, but why? Because you and he are connected by the curse that failed. That is no ordinary scar. And Harry says, so you think that dream, did it really happen? It is possible, said Dumbledore. I would say probable. Harry, did you see Voldemort? No, just the back of his chair. But there wouldn't have been anything else to see, would there? I mean, he hasn't got a body, has he? But then how could he have helped... Hell, how could he have held the wand? How indeed, muttered Dumbledore. How indeed. So that was why I wanted to leave there, and then I'll let you take from there, because I know they talk a little bit about your guy, Snape, in just a second. So I'll let you kind of take <laughs> take through there, man. Yeah, that's actually one of my favorite parts, because you know I'm such a Snape guy. But here's a big thing, though, is this is a very significant moment, because it it plays a big foreshadowing for later on <laughs> like a huge foreshadowing um and it just says dumbledore placed his long hands on either side of the pin sieve and swirled it rather as gold prospector would pan for fragments of gold and harry saw his own face change smoothly into snape's who opened his mouth and spoke to the ceiling his voice echoing slightly it's come back Kakarov's too stronger and clearer than ever. A connection I could have made without assistance, Dumbledore sigh. But never mind. And then Dumbledore has this really iconic line, so you might recognize this one. But he this is when he's kinda getting a little irritated at Harry, because he's been snooping around his office so much. He goes curiosity is not a sin he said but we should exercise caution with our curiosity yes indeed and then that's when you have a that big moment of you have this girl that seems familiar to us is coming out of the basement basin and it says frowning slightly he prodded the thoughts within the basin within the tip of his wand instantly a figure rose out of it a plump scowling Gert of about 16 who began to revolve slowly with her feet still in the basin when she spoke her voice echoed as Snape's had done as though it were coming from the depths of the stone basin you put a hex on me Professor Dumbledore and I was only teasing him sir I only said it I'd seen him kissing Florence behind the greenhouse last Thursday but why Bertha said Dumbledore sadly looking up at the now silently revolving girl why did you have to follow him in the first place bertha harry whispered looking up at her is that was that bertha jorkins yes said Dumbledore, prodding his thoughts in the basin again bertha sank back into him into them and they became silvery and opaque once more and that's when you know Dumbledore tells harry that he knew bertha jorkins in school and uh, I'll let you take it from there, man. 
Well, the only one thing I wanted to let you finish out the rest of the chapter because there's a part with Snape at the end of the oh, okay. chapter where, where Harry says something. Because I'm going to read the majority of this next chapter, guys. Actually, I'm probably going to read yeah. it in its entirety because I'm going to read the full third task, like <laughs> word for word for 10 pages. So take it up into the third task, bro. So that way it gives my little voice a break. <laughs> gotcha. No worries. I just didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to uh, step on your shoes. All man. good, this my man. Book, I'm going to so. I'm going to need as much voice <laughs> as I can muster for this next part, man. So take it take it all the way through to <laughs> uh, the third no task. No worries. <laughs> I got you, brother. I'll see if I don't know if I can hold down the fort that well. Like I say, uh, Jay Nelly usually calls the plays, and I'm dropping bombs in the end zone. So we're going to see how these hail marys go. Let's see how they go. Malice in the chalice, baby. Let's Cheers, do bro. This thing. Cheers, brother. Cheers. Good stuff. So here he tells Dumbledore about the dream he had. And then Dumbledore winds up telling him that he has been in contact with Sirius, which is like a big moment here. And we Sirius already talked about gonna, that. How like yeah, we, yeah, I said that already. Uh, how they helped him find a hiding spot for him in Hogsmeade and all that. Yeah, He's yeah, yeah. I was just kind of brushing over it real quick. But yeah, he found that hiding spot in Hogsmeade and everything. Um, and of course, you know, he told him about the scar and all that good stuff. Um, it did And you went into like, of course, did you want me to dive into the curse? It's a lot of foreshadowing stuff. I oh, I read, probably... I read the whole thing word for word from the book yeah. about, about the yeah, curse okay. that connects Harry and, and, and Voldemort. Yeah. So gotcha. You'll be looking at like the last couple pages and all that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, you're good. Um, it, but basically, yeah. And Neville's parents, you read all that. Um, as far as then here goes, so uh, Dumbledore, it did you? The, the one did that you, you're probably going to be around Bagman? this. Yeah, the, around the spot where, like, yeah, he, like, wonders about Bagman and wonders about Snape. Yeah, and wonder, that's like, what I was like, about to yeah, dive yeah, into. I yeah, that's what, yeah, like, that, that, yeah, that's where you want to be. If you wanted to save something no. or something, I didn't want to Nope, that's where up. you want to be. You're in um, the right spot. Awesome. So, like, Dumbledore confirms, basically, is what's happening here, uh, that Bagman hasn't been accused of dark activity uh, since and explains why Snape isn't loyal to Voldemort anymore. And he says, er, this is Harry speaking to Dumbledore, he goes, there is a Mr. Bagman that has never been accused of dark activity since. Yeah, since said Dumbledore calmly. So that's Dumbledore, and he goes, "No more than Professor Snape," he said. Harry, what made you think he really stopped supporting Voldemort, Professor? Dumbledore held Harry's gaze for a few seconds and then said, "That is a matter between Professor Snape and myself." And that's going to play a huge deal later on. I know most of y'all, if you've seen the Harry Potter movies, it's even in there. <laughs> he like shuts his ass down. Deal. I love that. He's like, no, Harry, I ain't going to tell you what you want to hear. Nope, shut your yeah. ass down. It's <laughs> yeah. my business, you 14-year-old boy. Don't worry about my reasons why I trust Snape. <laughs> yeah, man. And that's, uh, yeah, so that's going to play a big moment there. And. You know, it's crazy to even think that it's foreshadowed from book four and still it takes everyone by surprise. So uh, if you haven't read the books and you haven't seen the movies, you're in for a big surprise uh, later on that you'll probably even forget about, <laughs> honestly. So, uh, yeah, man, and I'll let you take it from there. Third task. Third task, baby. All right. A couple things before I actually get to the third task itself. Like, like I'll read the chapter third task, but like a couple things before the third task commences in the book. 
that I think are really important. Page 608, because I'm always, I'm always fascinated by the types of curses that the wizards are able to learn. So I actually wrote down all the curses that they have been practicing. So Harry, in page 608, actually, 608 in Goblet of Fire, Harry begins practicing the Reductor Curse, which allows the caster to blast solid objects out of the way. He's also practiced what's called the Four-Point Spell, which makes his wand point due north, enabling him to check whether he's going in the right direction within in the maze. And then also a shield charm that casts an invisible wall around him to deflect minor curses. Like nothing major, it's like any unforgivable curse would break through it. Even like it even says like Hermione's like Jelly Jinx legs curse broke through his little shield charm, right? So I thought that was pretty cool because that shield charm doesn't really come up much in this book, but in Order of the Phoenix it does quite a bit. Um, but then from there, in 609, I'm going to read Sirius Black's letter. It reads as follows. If Voldemort is really getting stronger again, he wrote, my priority is to ensure your safety. He cannot hope to lay hands on you while you are under Dumbledore's protection. But all the same, take no risks. Concentrate on getting through that maze safely, and then we can all turn our attention to other matters. So that's, that's Sirius's letter back there and then one other big thing too is Rita Skeeter's new column remember when he collapsed in divination and Chase told you about the dream a couple minutes ago I should say probably about half hour ago now but when Chase <laughs> talked about the dream in, in divination there was like the, he saw something on the windowsill uh, before he kind of went out of out of consciousness into the dream well now that's like there's something here that's Rita Skeeter's new column. Somehow she figured out what happened in Divination, and I'm going to read that column. Harry Potter, disturbed and dangerous. The boy who defeated he who must not be named is unstable and possibly dangerous, writes Rita Skeeter, special correspondent. Alarming evidence has recently come to light about Harry Potter's strange behavior, which casts doubts upon his suitability to compete in a demanding competition like the Triwizard Tournament or even to attend Hogwarts school. Potter, the Daily Prophet can exclusively reveal, regularly collapses at school and is often heard to complain of pain in the scar on his forehead, a relic of the curse in which you know who attempted to kill him. On Monday last, midway through divination lesson, your Daily Prophet reporter witnessed Potter storming from the class claiming that his scar hurt too badly to continue studying. It is possible, say top experts at St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries, that Potter's brain was affected by the attack inflicted upon him by you-know-who, and that his insistence that the scar is still hurting is an expression of his deep-seated confusion. He might even be pretending, said one specialist. This could be a plea for attention. The Daily Prophet, however, has unearthed worrying facts about Harry Potter that Albus Dumbledore, headmaster of Hogwarts, has carefully concealed from the wizarding public. Potter can speak parcel tongue, reveals Jaco Malfoy, a Hogwarts fourth year. There was a lot of attacks on students a couple years ago, and most people thought that Potter was behind them after they saw him lose his temper at a dueling club and set a snake on another boy. It was all hushed up, though, but he's made friends with werewolves and giants, too. We think he'd do anything for a bit of power. Parcel tongue is the ability to converse with snakes has long been considered a dark art, Indeed, the most famous parcel mouth of our time is none other than you know him himself. A member of the Dark Force Defense League who wished to remain anonymous stated that he would regard any wizard who could speak parcel tongue as worthy of investigation. 
Personally, I would be highly suspicious of anyone who could converse with snakes, as serpents are often used in the worst kinds of dark magic and are historically associated with evildoers. And similarly, anyone who seeks out the company of such visage creatures as werewolves and giants would appear to have a fondness for violence. Albus Dumbledore should surely consider whether a boy such as this should be allowed to compete in the Triwizard Tournament. Some fear that Potter might resort to dark arts in his desperation to win the tournament, the third task, which takes place this evening. So that was Rita Skeeta's column about Harry. Big one there. Now, last paragraph before I let uh, Chase bring us up to where the third task starts. I'm going to read this, this fourth to last paragraph here. Uh, when Harry, because this is kind of a foreshadow. So when Harry says, like, how did she know your scar hurt? And, and there was no way she could have heard. And Harry says, well, the window was open. I opened it to breathe. And Hermione, like, screams at him. He's like, you were at the top of the North Tower. Your voice couldn't have carried all the way down to the grounds. He said, well, you're the one that's supposed to be researching magical methods of bugging. You tell me how she did it. I've been trying, said Hermione, but I... But an odd, dreamy expression suddenly came over Hermione's face. She slowly raised a hand and ran her fingers through her hair. Are you all right? said Ron, frowning at her. Yes, said Hermione breathlessly. She ran her fingers through her hair again, then held up her hand to her mouth as speaking into an invisible walkie-talkie. And Harry and Ron stared at each other. I have an idea, said Hermione as she gazed into space. I think I know, because then no one would be able to see, even Moody. And she'd have to be able to get to the window ledge, but she's not allowed. Oh, she's definitely not allowed. I think we've got her. Just give me two seconds in the library just to make sure. And with that, I'll turn it back over to you, and I'll let you take us all the way up into the start of the third task, brother. Awesome, man. Uh, is it cool if I uh, take it just to the point where, like, right before they walk into the maze? Is that yeah? Take it all the way. Yeah, take it all the way to the point before. Yep. No, take it all the way to the part before they walk to the maze. Heck yeah, man. Do it. Cool. Good stuff, man. Um, yeah. So one thing I did think was cool was when. Right before the third task is about to start, they have this big breakfast. And, of course, you know, the Dursleys aren't showing up for Harry. Like, they're not going to be doing that. So, uh, the Weasleys, this is, uh, you know, they really, especially Molly, has really cared uh, cared for Harry um, already through these past four years. And uh, especially in year four here is really when you start to kind of see, like, she really sees him as like her own son which is really cool and it kind of reminded me of like parents showing up to like college or something like if you haven't seen like your parents for a while and they just like show up or i know how we live down here or if you go back home to visit but especially like parents like going to college that are trying to like reminisce on their own old days is what it reminded me of um and like a big kind of reveal happens here right so we were talking about uh, a couple weeks ago at the yule ball Remember Percy was like subbing in for Crouch because like he couldn't be found, and uh, so they're at, all at breakfast, and you know Harry is asking, you know how is Percy doing, and the Weasleys tell him that Percy Percy has been brought in for questioning, uh, because you know Mr. Crouch, he claimed was sending in uh, information saying that he was supposed to sub in for him. And the ministry thinks that the instructions might not have been written by Crouch himself. So kind of, you know, Percy always been, you know, the teacher's pet kind of guy is, you know, toeing the line right here. 
Uh, and then they tell him that Cornelius Fudge will now be the fifth judge in Crouch's absence, and they're not letting Percy fill in uh, during the mean uh, during this third task here. Um, Hagrid kind of during this moment, you know, he keeps glancing at Madame Maxine a little bit, you know, not to give any foreshadowing away, but yeah, yeah, loosen up your buttons, baby. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, anyways, so right before they start, so they walk onto the Quidditch field, which was now completely unrecognizable. A 20-foot-high hedge red ran along the way around the edge of it. There was a gap right in front of them, the entrance in the vast maze. The passage beyond it looked dark and creepy. Professor McGonagall said, If you get into difficulty and wish to be rescued, send red sparks into the air, and one of us will come and get you. And then, you know, this is when in that we're about to run into the maze here, and I'm about to turn it over to Josh. It just says, uh, The towery hedges cast black shadows across the path, and whether because they were so tall and thick or because they had been enchanted, the sound of the surrounding crowd was silenced the moment they entered the maze. And I'll turn it over to you, man. Sure, dude. There's a couple things I wanted to just touch on because I thought they were favorite moments for myself. They're not terribly impactful for the story. Mm -hmm. One is kind of, but, um, you know, Mrs. Weasley actually tells a story of being told off by the fat lady for getting back to the common room at 4 a.m. after her midnight stroll with Mr. Weasley when they were in high school. I thought that was kind of cool. Also, like... Amos Diggory giving Harry attitude because Cedric didn't get mentioned in the Daily Prophet. Like, it was Harry's fault. He's like, well, yeah. didn't bother to correct him, did he? No. Like, <laughs> but, like, what I thought that, like, why I think this is important because this moment that Cedric has with his mom and dad, I won't say anything else, but, like, it's a special yeah. moment in a way. Mm-hmm. So, and then Mrs. Weasley giving Hermione attitude until Harry sets her straight. Remember? Like, she, like, said, like, yeah, she, like, greeted right. Hermione coldly, and Harry's like, dude you don't listen to Rita do you that's all lies man she's like oh okay and then like was nice to Hermione again like I just yeah, I paraphrased the hell out of that but it's like I thought it was funny how mm-hmm. she was just giving Hermione some some attitude um but yes now to get into it in page 660 621 the points stand as such Harry and Cedric are tied in first with 85 points Victor Crumb has 80 points Fleur Delacour has between 60 and 64 points. Let me tell you why. It's because we never got a set number for the first task. But the lowest that she would have been able to receive, because we know she got 25 for the second task, the lowest that she would have been is at 60. The highest she could have been is 64. So she's somewhere in between there um, for the for the point standings. Now, I'm going to put on my best... Uh, book club version for you guys welcome to jay nelly's book club as he's gonna go (laughs) ahead and read the entirety of the third task for it let's go ahead before i get in it i'm gonna take a little malice in the chalice sip of water get the vocal cords all all uh, situated here let's do it man (laughs) yeah all right here we go Bagman blew his whistle in the distance for the third time. All the champions were now inside the maze. Harry kept looking behind him. The old feeling that he was being watched was upon him. The maze was growing darker with every passing minute as the sky overhead deepened to navy. He reached a fork. Point me, he whispered to the wand, holding it flat in his palm. 
The wand spun around once and pointed toward his right into the solid hedge. That way was north, and he knew that he needed to go northwest for the center of the maze. The best he could do was take the left fork and go right again as soon as possible. The path ahead was empty too, and when Harry reached a right turn and took it, he found his way was, was unblocked. Harry didn't know why, but the lack of obstacles was unnerving him. Surely he should have met something by now. It felt as though the maze were luring him into a false sense of security. Then he heard movement right behind him. He held out his wand ready to attack, but its beam fell only upon Cedric who had just hurried out of a path on the right hand side. Cedric looked severely shaken. The sleeve of his robe was smoking. Hagrid's blast ended scroots, he hissed. They're enormous. I only just got away. He shook his head and dived out of sight along another path. Clean to put plenty of distance between himself and the scroots, Harry hurried off again. Then, as he turned a corner, he saw a Dementor gliding toward him. Twelve feet tall, its face hidden by its hood, its rotting, scabbed hands outstretched in advance, sensing its way blindly towards him. Harry could hear its rattling breath. He felt cold clamminess stealing over him, but he knew what he had to do. He summoned the happiest thought he could, concentrated with all his might on the thought of getting out of the maze and celebrating with Ron and Hermione, raised his wand, and cried, EXPECTO PATRONUM! A silver stag erupted from the end of Harry's wand and galloped toward the Dementor, which fell back and tripped over the hem of its robes. Harry had never seen a Dementor stumble. Hang on! He shouted, advancing in the wake of a silver Patronus. You're a boggart! Ridiculous! <laughs> there was a loud crack. That was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> and the shapeshifter exploded in a wisp of smoke. The silver stag faded from sight, but Harry wished it could have stayed. He could have used the company. But he moved on, quickly and quietly as possible, listening hard, his wand held high once more. Left, right, left again. Twice he found himself facing dead ends. He did the four-point spell again and found that he was going too far east. He turned back, took a right turn, and saw an, oh, an odd golden mist floating ahead of him. Harry approached it cautiously, pointing the wand's beam at it. This looked like some kind of enchantment. He wondered whether he might be able to blast it out of the way. Reducto, he said. A spell shot straight through the air, right through the mist, leaving it intact. He, sp he supposed he should have known better. The reductor curse was for solid objects. What would happen if he walked through the mist? Was it worth chancing it, or should he d double back? He was still hesitating when a scream shattered the silence. Fleur? Harry yelled. There was a silence. He stared all around him. What had happened to her? Her scream seemed to have come from somewhere ahead. He took a deep breath and ran through the enchanted mist. The world turned upside down. Harry was hanging from the ground with his hair on end, his glasses dangling off his nose, threatening to fall into the bottomless sky. He clutched them to the end of his nose and hung there, terrified. It felt as though his feet were glued to the grass, which had now become the ceiling. Below him, the dark, star-spangled heavens stretched endlessly. He felt as though if he tried to move one of his feet, he would fall away from the earth completely. Think, he told himself as all the blood rushed to his head. Think. But not one of the spells he had practiced had been designed to combat a sudden reversal of ground and sky. Did he dare move his foot? He could hear the blood pounding in his ears. He had two choices. Try and move or send up red sparks and get rescued and disqualified from the task. He shut his eyes so he wouldn't be able to see the view endlessly below him, put his right foot as hard as he could away from the grassy ceiling, and immediately the world rightened itself. Harry fell forward onto his knees onto the wonderfully solid ground. 
He felt temporarily limp with shock. He took a deep, steadying breath, then got up again and hurried forward, looking back over his shoulder as he ran away from the golden mist, which twinkled innocently behind him in the moonlight. He paused at a junction of two paths and looked around for some sign of Fleur. He was sure it had been he, she who had screamed, but what had she met? Was she all right? There was no sign of red sparks. Did that mean she got herself out of trouble, or was she in such trouble that she couldn't reach her wand? Here he took the right fork with a feeling of increased unease, but at the same time, he couldn't help but thinking, one champion down. The cup was somewhere close by, and it sounded as though Fleur was no longer in the running. He'd gotten this far, hadn't he? What if he actually managed to win? Fleetingly, and for the first time since he found himself champion, he saw again that image of himself raising the Triwizard Cup and Triumph <laughs> and, uh, in front of the rest of the school. He met nothing for ten minutes, but kept running into dead ends. Twice he took the same wrong turn. Finally, he found a new route and started to jog along it, his wand light waving, making his shadow flicker and distort on the hedge halls. Then he rounded another corner and found himself facing a blast-ended scroot. Cedric was right. It was enormous. Ten feet long, it looked like a giant scorpion than anything else. Its long sting curled over its back. Thick armor glinted in the light from Harry's wand, which he pointed at it. Stupefy! The spell hit the Scrooge's armor and rebounded, and Harry ducked just in time, but he could smell burning hair that had singed the top of his head. The Scrooge issued a blast from its fire from its end and flew toward him. Impedimenta! Harry yelled, and the spell hit the Scrooge's armor again and ricocheted off. Harry staggered back a few paces and fell over. Impedimenta! The Scrooge was inches from him when it froze. He had managed to hit it on his fleshy, shellless underside. Panting, Harry pushed himself away from it and ran hard in the opposite direction. The impediment curse was not permanent, and that screw would be regaining the use of its legs at any moment. He took a left path and hit a dead end, a right and hit another. Forcing himself to stop, heart hammering, he performed the four-point spell again, backtracked and chose a path that would take him northwest. He had been hurrying along the new path for a few minutes when he heard something in the path running parallel to his own that made him stop dead. "'What are you doing?' yelled Cedric. "'What the hell do you think you're doing?' And then Harry heard Crumb's voice. "'Crucio!' The air was suddenly full of Cedric's yells. Horrified, Harry began sprinting up the path trying to find a way into Cedric's. When none appeared, he tried the reductor curse again. It wasn't very effective, but it burned a small hole in the hedge through which Harry forced his legs, kicking at the thick brambles and branches until they broke and made an opening, and he struggled through it, tearing his robes, looking to his right. He saw Cedric jerk jerking and twitching on the ground and Crumb standing over him. Harry pulled himself up, pointing his wand at Crumb just as Crumb looked up. Crumb turned and began to run. Stupefy! Harry yelled. The spell had hit Crumb in the back. He stopped dead in his tracks, fell forward, and lay motionless face down in the grass. Harry dashed over to Cedric, who had stopped twitching and lay there panting, his hands over his face. Are you alright? Harry said roughly, grabbing Cedric's arm. Yeah, said Cedric. I don't believe it. He crept up behind me. I heard him. I turned, his, I turned around and he had his wand on me. Cedric got up. He was still shaking. He and Harry looked down at Crumb. I can't believe this. I thought he was alright, Harry said. So did I, said Cedric. Did you hear Fleur scream earlier, said Harry? Yeah. You don't think Crumb got her too, Cedric replied. 
I don't know, said Harry slowly. Should we leave him here? Cedric muttered. No. I reckon we should send up Red Sparks. Someone will come and collect him, otherwise he'll probably be eaten by a scroot. He deserved it, Cedric muttered, but all the same, he raised his wand and shot a shower of red sparks in the air, which hovered high above Crumb, marking the spot where he lay. Harry and Cedric stood there in the darkness for a moment. <clears throat> then Cedric said, well, I suppose we better go on. What, said Harry? Oh, yeah, right. It was an odd moment. He and Cedric had been briefly united against Crumb. Now the fact that they were opponents came back to Harry. The two of them proceeded up the dark path without speaking. Harry turned left, Cedric right, and Cedric's footsteps soon died away. Harry moved on, continuing to use a four-point spell, making sure he was moving in the right direction. It was between him and Cedric now. His desire to reach the cup first was now burning stronger than ever, but he could hardly believe what he'd just seen Crumb do. The use of an unforgivable curse on a fellow human meant a life term in Azkaban. That was what Moody had told them. Crumb surely wouldn't have wanted to win the Triwizard Cup that badly. Harry sped up. Every so often he hit more dead ends, but the increasing darkness made him feel sure he was going near the heart of the center of the maze. Then as he strode down a long straight path, he saw movement once again, and the beam of his wand light hit an extraordinary creature, one of which he had only seen in picture form in his monster book of monsters. It was a sphinx. It had the body of an overlarge lion, great clawed paws, and a long yellowish tail ending in a brown tuft. Its head, however, was that of a woman. She turned, long, almond-shaped eyes upon Harry as he approached. He raised his wand, hesitating. She was not crouching as if to spring, but pacing from side to side of the path, blocking his progress. Then she spoke in a deep, hoarse voice. You are very near your goal. The quickest way is past me. So, so will you move, please? Said Harry, knowing what the answer was going to be. No, <laughs> she continued to pace. Not unless you can answer my riddle. Answer on your first guess, I'll let you pass. Answer wrongly, I attack, remain silent, I will let you walk away from me, unscathed. Harry's stomach slipped several notches. It was Hermione who was good at this sort of thing, not him. He weighed his chances. If the riddle was too hard, he could keep silent and get away from the Sphinx unharmed and try to find an alternate route to the center. Okay, can I hear the riddle? The Sphinx sat down on her hind legs in the very middle of the path and recited, First, think of the person who lives in disguise, who deals in secrets and tells naught but lies. Next, tell me what's always the last thing to mend, the middle of middle and end of the end. And finally, give me the sound often heard during the search for a hard-to-find word. Now string them together and answer me this, which creature would you be unwilling to kiss? Harry gaped at her. Could I have it again more slowly, he said tentatively. She blinked at him, smiled, and repeated the poem. All the clues add up to a creature I wouldn't want to kiss, Harry asked. She merely smiled a mysterious smile. Harry took that for a yes. He cast his mind around. There were plenty of animals he wouldn't want to kiss. His immediate thought was a blast on its screw, but something told him that wasn't the answer, and he'd have to try and work out the clues. A person in disguise who lies, uh, that'd be an imposter. No, that's not my guess. A spy. I'll come back to that. Could you give me the next line again? And she repeated the next line of the poem. The last thing to mend? Uh, no idea. Middle of middle? Uh, can I have that last bit again? She gave him the last four lines. 
the sound that often heard for the search of a hard to find word. Uh, that'd be, uh, hang on. Uh, er, wait, a sound! The Sphinx smiled at him. Spy, er, spy, er. Uh, said Harry, pacing up and down. A creature I wouldn't want to kill. A spider! The Sphinx smiled broadly. She got, she got up and stretched her front legs, moved aside from the pass. Thanks, said Harry, amazed at his own brilliance, and dashed forward. He had to be close now. He had to be. His wand was telling him he was bang on course, and as long as he didn't make anything too horrible, he'd have a chance. Harry broke into a run. He had a choice of paths up ahead. Point me, he whispered again to his wand. And it spun around and pointed him to the right-hand one, and he dashed and saw the light ahead. The Triwizard Cup was gleaming on a plinth a hundred yards away. Suddenly, a dark figure hurled out into the path in front of him. Cedric was going to get there first. Cedric was sprinting as fast as he could towards the cup, and Harry knew he would never catch up. Cedric was much taller and had much longer legs. Then Harry saw something immense over a hedge to his left, moving quickly along a path that intersected with his own. It was moving so fast that Cedric was about to run into it, and Cedric, his eyes on the cup, had not seen it. Cedric! Harry bellowed, on your left! Cedric looked around just in time to hurl himself past the thing and avoid colliding with it, but in his haste he tripped. Harry saw Cedric's wand fly out of his hand as a gigantic spider stepped into the path and began to bear down upon Cedric. Stupefy! Harry yelled. The spell hit the spider's gigantic, hairy black body, but for all the good it did, he might as well throw a stone at it. The spider jerked, scuttled around, and ran at Harry instead. Stupefy! Impedimenta! Stupefy! But it was no use. The spider was too large or so magical that the spells were doing no more than aggravating it. Harry had one horrifying glimpse of eight shiny black eyes and razor-sharp pincers, pincers before him. He was lifted into the air on his front leg, struggling madly, trying to kick it. His leg connected with the pincer, and next moment he was in excruciating pain. He could hear Cedric yelling stupefied too, but his spell had no more effect than Harry's. Harry raised his wand, and the spider opened its pincers once more and shouted, Expelliarmus! It worked. The disarming spell made the spider drop him, but that meant Harry fell 12 feet onto his already injured leg, which crumpled beneath him. Without pausing to think, he aimed high at the spider's underbelly as he had done with the screw and shouted, Stupefied, just as Cedric had yelled the same thing. The two spells combined did what one alone had not. The spider keeled over sideways, flattening a nearby hedge, strewing the path with a tangle of hairy legs. Harry, he heard Cedric shouting, You alright? Did it fall on you? No, Harry called back panting. He looked down at his leg. It was bleeding freely. He could see some sort of thick, gluey secretion from the spider's pincers on his torn robes. He tried to get up, but his leg was shaken badly and it did not want to support his weight. He leaned against the hedge, grasping for breath, and looked around. Cedric was standing feet from the Triwizard Cup, which was gleaming behind him. Take it, then, Harry panted to Cedric. Go on, take it. You're there. The Cedric didn't move. He merely stood there looking at Harry. Then he turned to stare at the cup. Harry saw the longing expression on his face in the golden light. Cedric looked around at Harry again, who was now holding onto the hedge to support himself. Cedric took a deep breath. You take it. You should win. That's twice you saved my neck in here. That's not how it's supposed to work, Harry said. He felt angry. His leg was very painful. He was aching all over from trying to throw off the spider. And after all his efforts, Cedric had beaten him to it, just as he had beaten Harry to ask Cho to the ball. The one who reaches the cup first gets the points. 
That's you. I'm telling you, I'm not going to win any races on this leg. Cedric took a few paces nearer to the stunned spider away from the cup, shaking his head. No, he said. Stop being noble, said Harry irritably. Just take it and we can get out of here. Cedric watched Harry steadying himself, holding tight to the hedge. You told me about the dragons, Cedric said. I would have gone down to the first task. I wouldn't I would have gone down in the first task if you hadn't told me what was coming. I had help on that too, Harry snapped, trying to mop up the bloody leg. You helped me with the egg. We're square. I had help with the egg in the first place, said Cedric. We're still square, said Harry testily, his, his testing his leg gingerly. It shook violently as he put his weight on it. He had sprained his ankle when the spider had dropped him. You should have gotten more points on the second task, said Cedric mullishly. You stayed behind to get all the hostages. I should have done that. I was the only one thick enough to take that song seriously, said Harry bitterly. Just take the cup. No, said Cedric. He stepped over the spider's tangled legs to join Harry, who stared at him. Cedric was serious. He was walking away from the sort of glory the Hufflepuff house hadn't seen in centuries. Go on, Cedric said. He looked as though this was costing him every ounce of resolution that he's had. But his face was set, his arms folded, he seemed to decide. Harry looked from Cedric to the cup, <clears throat> and for one shining moment he saw himself emerging from the maze holding it. Saw himself holding the Triwizard Cup aloft, hearing the roar of the crowd, saw Cho's shining face with admiration, more clearly than he had ever seen it before. And then the picture faded, and he found himself staring at Cedric's shadowy, stubborn face. Both of us, said Harry. What? We'll take it at the same time. It's still a Hogwarts victory. We'll tie for it. Cedric stared at Harry. He unfolded his arms. Are you, you sure? Yeah, said Harry. Yeah, we've helped each other out, haven't we? We both got here. Let's just take it together. For a moment, Cedric looked as though he couldn't believe his ears. Then his face split into a grin. You're on. Come here. He grabbed Harry's arm below the shoulder, helped Harry limp towards the plinth where the cup stood, and when they had reached it, they both held out a hand over one of the club's gleaming handles. On three, right? One, two, three. He and Cedric both grasped the handle. Instantly, Harry felt a jerk somewhere behind his navel. His feet had left the ground. He could not unclench the hand holding the Triwizard Cup. It was pulling him onward in a howl of wind and swirling color, Cedric at his side. And that is the end of the third task. And now I need a drink of water while Chase goes ahead and gets you in <laughs> to uh, chapter 32, Flesh, Blood, and Bone. You crushed it, man. <laughs> that was awesome. Man, it's almost like you wrote the thing. It was, that was badass. <laughs> Thanks, bro. Um, just a couple things on that because, you know, I, I mentioned the movie here and there. Uh, so Robert Patterson is actually, I like him as an actor. But in the film, I was talking to Josh about this last night. Like, it was completely different. Like, none of that was even in there. The biggest part was, like, they try to say people, like Dumbledore says, be careful because people change in the maze. Like, when did they ever say anything about people changing in the maze in that book? And then what happened was the big part where usually the spider is, like Cedric gets caught by these vine things. They look like devil snare, but they don't know what it they don't say what it's called. So like these arms of vines are coming out and like grabbing Cedric and he's like grabbing on the ground like trying to get out of it and he can't. 
And then Harry goes, Reducto! And like shoots the vines off. And then Cedric looks at Harry and he goes, For a minute there, I thought, I thought you were going to let it get me. And then Harry just goes, For a minute there, I thought I would. Like, when did that ever happen? Do we are we just pulling lines out of our ass now? Excuse my language. Is that what we're doing? Yeah. But I accepted it. I was like, all right, whatever. And then, like, all of a sudden, after they fight these vines, like the Tri Wizard Cup is in front of them. So it's just completely different. And the part with Crumb was he walks up to Harry, and his eyes have changed to white, like he's been possessed. And he like holds his wand. But instead of doing anything, he just, like, takes it back and walks off. And it's, on top of that, if that should have even happened, it should have been to Cedric. So, I don't know what they read for this third task. I think they literally just went through the whole 37 pages or whatever it was for that last chapter and go, Well, we gotta cut something. (laughs) (laughs) Just ripped it out, man. But, yeah, this this works out perfect because... If that's cool with you, I'll take flesh, blood, and bone, and I'll let you close us out with the big stuff. Sounds good, man. Awesome, man. This works out because this is actually uh, my biggest, one of my biggest interesting facts today. But um, so, you know, they get transported, and I'll just take it from the top. It goes, they have left the Hogwarts ground completely. They had obviously traveled miles. Perhaps hundreds of miles, for even the mountains surrounding the castle were gone. They were standing instead in a dark and overgrown graveyard. The black outline of a small church was visible beyond a large yew tree to their right. A hill rose above them to their feet. Harry could just make out the outline of a fire, a fine old house on the hillside. Cedric looked down at the Triwizard Cup and then up at Harry. Did anyone tell you the cup was a portkey? Yes. Squinting tensely through the darkness, they watched a figure drawing nearer, walking steadily towards them between the graves. Harry could make out a face, but from the way it was, lo- it was walking and holding its arms, he could tell that it was carrying something. Whoever it was, was short, wearing a hooded cloak pulled up over his head to obscure his face. And several paces nearer the gap between, then closing. All the time, Harry saw that the thing in the person's arms looked like a baby. Or was it merely a bundle of robes? And then without warning, Harry's scar exploded in pain. It was agony such as he had never felt in his life. His wand slipped from his fingers as he was putting his hands over his face. His knees buckled. He was on the ground and he could see nothing at all. His head was about to split open. From far away above his head, he heard a high, cold voice say, Kill the spare! A swishing noise and a second voice which screeched the words of the night, Avada Kedavra! A blast of green light blazed through the Harry's eyelids, and he heard something heavy fall to the ground beside him. The pain in his scar reached such a pitch that he had retched, and then it diminished, terrified of what was he was about to see. He opened his stinging eyes. Cedric was lying spread-eagled on the ground beside him. 
He was dead. For a second, that contained an eternity, Harry stared into Cedric's face at his open gray eyes, blank and expressionless, as the windows of a deserted house at his half-open mouth, which looked slightly surprised. And then, before Harry's mind had accepted what he was seeing, before he could feel anything but numb disbelief, he felt himself being pulled to his feet. The short man dragged Harry to the marble headstone. The name on the headstone was Tom Riddle. Sorry, did you want to say something on that? No, no, not at all. Oh, gotcha. Sorry, I, I thought I thought you wanted to chime in there. Yeah, get a little little malice, baby. The cloaked man was now conjuring tight cords around Harry, tying him from neck to ankles to headstone. Harry could hear the shallow, fast breathing from the depths of the hood. He struggled, and the man hit him, hit him with a hand and a finger missing, and Harry realized who was under the hood. It was Wormtail. Wormtail drew a length of some black material from inside of his cloak and sniffed and stuffed it roughly into Harry's mouth. Cedric was lying some 20 feet away, some way beyond them, beyond him, glinting in the starlight lay the Triwizard Cup. Harry's wand was on the ground at Cedric's feet. The bundle of robes that Harry had thought was a baby was close by, at the foot of the grave. It seemed to be stirring fretfully. Harry watched it, and his scar seared with pain again, and he suddenly knew that he didn't want to see what was in those robes. He didn't want that bundle opened. He looked down and saw a gigantic, gigantic snake slithering through the grass, circling the headstone where he had been tied. Wormtail was pushing a cauldron towards the grave. The cauldron was large enough for a full-grown man to sit in. The liquid in the cauldron seemed to heat very fast. The surface began not only to bubble, but to send out fiery sparks as though it were on fire. Steam was thickening blurring the outline of Wormtail tending to the fire. The movements beneath the robes became more agitated, and Harry heard the high, cold voice again, Harry! The whole surface of the water was a light with sparks now. It might have been encrusted with diamonds. Is it ready, master? It is ready, master, now! Now! said the cold voice. Wormtail pulled open the robes on the ground, revealing what was inside them, and Harry let out a yell that was strangled in the, in the wad of the material blocking his mouth. It was as though Wormtail had flipped over a stone and revealed something ugly, sliming and blind, but worse, a hundred times worse. The thing Wormtail had been carrying had a shape of a crouched human child, except that Harry had never seen anything less like a child. It was hairless and scaly-looking, a dark, raw, reddish black. Its arms and legs were thin and feeble in its face. No child alive even had a face like that, flat and snake-like, with gleaming red eyes. The thing that seemed most helpless, it raised its arms, put them around Wormtail's neck, and Wormtail lifted it. Wormtail lowered the creature into the cauldron, and there was a hiss 
and it vanished below the surface. Harry heard it frail body hit the bottom with a soft thud. Let it drown! Harry thought as his scar burning almost passed endurance. Please, please let it drown. Bone of the father, unwillingly given, you will Un- renew unknow- your son. This is where I'm It's unknowingly it's given. Un- unknowingly, unknowingly given, not unwilling. Un- oh, I said yeah. unwillingly. I read it too fast. Unknowingly you, you, what? Yeah. Yeah. You will renew your son. The surface of the grave at Harry's feet cracked. Horrified, Harry watched as a fine trickle of dust rose into the air at Wormtail's command and fell softly into the cauldron. The diamond surface of the water broke and hissed. It sent sparks in all directions and turned a vivid poisonous looking blue. And now Wormtail was whimpering. He pulled a long, thin, shining silver dagger from inside his cloak. His voice broke into petrified sobs. Flesh of the servant, willingly given. You will revive your master. He stretched his right hand out in front of him, the hand with the missing finger. He gripped the dagger very tightly in his left hand and swung it upward. Upward. Harry realized what Wormtail was about to do a second before it happened. He closed his eyes as tightly as he could, but he could not block the scream that pierced the night. That went through Harry as though he had been stabbed with the dagger too. He heard something fall to the ground. Herm Wormtail's anguished panting, then sickening splash as something was dropped into the cauldron. Harry couldn't stand to look, but the potion had turned a burning red. The light of its it shone through Harry's closed eyelids. Wormtail was gasping and moaning in agony. Not until Harry felt Wormtail's anguished breath on his face did he realize that Wormtail was right in front of him. The blood of the enemy forcibly taken! You will resurrect your foe! Harry could do nothing to prevent it. He was tied too tightly, squinting! Squinting down, struggling helplessly at the ropes binding him, he saw the shining silver dagger shaking in Wormtail's remaining hand. He felt its point penetrate the crook of his right the crook of his right arm and the blood seeping down the sleeve of his torn robes. Wormtail, still panting with pain, fumbled in the pocket for a glass vial and held it to Harry's cut so that a dribble of blood fell into it. He staggered back to the cauldron with Harry's blood and poured it inside. The liquid within turned instantly, a blinding white. Wormtail, his job done, dropped to his knees beside the cauldron, then slumped sideways, lay on the ground, cradling the bleeding stump of his arm, grasping and sobbing. The cauldron was simmering sending its diamond sparks in all directions so blindingly bright that it turned all else to velvety blackness. Nothing happened. Let it drown. Let it have drowned, Harry thought. Let it have gone wrong. Then suddenly, the sparks emanating from the cauldron were extinguished. A surge of white steam billowed thickly from the cauldron instead, obliterating everything in front of Harry, so that he couldn't see Wormtail or Cedric or anything but vapor hanging on the air. It's gone wrong. 
It's gone wrong. It's drowned. Please. Please, let it be dead. But then, through the mist in front of him, he saw with an icy surge of terror the dark outline of a man. Tall, skeletally thin, rising slowly from inside the cauldron. Romy. This said the high, cold voice from behind the steam, and Wormtail, sobbing and moaning, still cradling his mutilated arms, scrambled to pick up the black robes from the ground, got to his feet, reached up, and pulled them one-handed over his master's head. The thin man stepped out of the cauldron, staring at Harry, and Harry stared back into the face that had been haunted his nightmares for three years whiter than a skull with wide livid scarlet eyes and a nose that was flat as a snake's with slits of nostrils Lord Voldemort had risen again boom and I'll let you take it man dude yeah a couple points that I like to talk about on this one is like they it was so sad what happened to Cedric because not only did he die like think about this usually like when something crazy like this happens it's like the end of the chapter or the very beginning of a new chapter it was like the second page in like like it would, so flesh blood and bone starts on page 636 and on 638 is when they kill him they're in the second page in like it was so nonchalant and then they just move past it like like yeah. there was no one like crying over the body there because they're in a graveyard by themselves like that it was just so hard to swallow they did it as if it meant nothing like Killing Cedric, who was a young seventeen-year-old yeah. boy, like it was as easy as flipping a page in a book. They didn't even stop. Like that was it. Killed him, and like he wasn't mentioned. Like like that was it for the rest of the chapter. It's like it never happened. Like that was such a profound moment for me, because like that that they snuffed the life out of a kid so full of vitality and youth, and like like all right, on to our actual stuff. Like that guy was an inconvenience. He's gone now. Let's continue on. Like, that is so sad to me. And also, I thought it was pretty cool, too. One of my favorite lines, and you, and you read it in there, one of my favorite lines is on page 638, and this is of the entire series, not just this book. It was right after they killed Cedric. And I just love the uh, the way it sounds. And it, it's so... What do you call it? Like, you can, you can visually see it, and it, it resonates with me. The line where he says, For a second... That contained an eternity. Harry stared into Cedric's face at his open gray eyes, blank and expressionless as the windows of the deserted house. Like a second that contained an eternity is so profound. I love that. Like that has such a deep meaning to it. In such a short amount of time, it contained forever. Like that's that's some good writing. So those are two things I wanted to point out and touch on. The fact that like they they killed Cedric and there was no fanfare. He didn't get to fight for his life. He didn't have a chance. Anything. They get there. They think they won. Like, they see things happen. Like, what's going on? And then, boom, he's dead. And then, they moving on, hey, back to the main course, which is Harry Potter. Like, what? <laughs> like, this boy just died, man. Like, I thought it was crazy. It was, yeah, just, sorry, not to interrupt you, just, um, uh, a thought on that because you know Cedric's my boy man. yeah like I've always been a Cedric guy I'm not even a Hufflepuff <laughs> and I've always liked Cedric like honestly like Cedric is 
Oh, we always bring up Game of Thrones, like, the Ned Stark. Like, he really is, like, one of those good old boys. Like, yeah, like, he, I mean, he, on top of being talented and everything, even going back to Azkaban, remember, like, he wanted, like, he didn't even want to win that Quidditch match against Harry because he didn't think it was right. Uh, like, when he fell off the broom, like, he's always been the most loyal guy. And it, this is kind of one of those shocking moments where you're just like, wow, like, there was no big fight scene there was no like oh i'm gonna make a stand and then i wind up dying in the fight scene with harry no it's like he just got taken out like he was trash like and then this guy you know two books you've been with him it was all it wasn't as shop shocking as like the red wedding or anything definitely not but still it resonated with you where you're just like wow like that just happened like that just happened out of nowhere um so yeah yeah man and uh raise my wand to to that guy <laughs> yeah cheers to cedric man um and with that I'll, I'll let you take it out to uh we're we're getting into yeah. the good old stuff now good good old for stuff sure now, man. man yeah i'll uh I'll close us out for the for today. This is the last chapter that we're going to talk. It's thirty three, the Death Theater. So we'll go. We'll finish through this chapter, and then we'll talk about our um, any any like foreshadowed moments. I know we read a lot of them, but like specific ones. And then um, because we mentioned we didn't really have any plot holes for this portion um, in this episode for part five. There's some in part six, and then I'll let Chase. will I'll finish it out with the chapter here. Then Chase will finish it out with some interesting facts. I've only got one, and it's a quick one. So uh, Chase is our interesting fact guy. So. Yeah, I'll get I'll get through the uh, end of the meat here in this last last uh, chapter. It's a great it's a great one to uh, to close off on too. Um, so one other thing I wanted to mention too is that we do get like we do get the the closure later on. I don't want to say anything like like in next week we'll get that closure, but that's why it was so weird when Cedric got hit with that curse like. There was no closure behind it. It's just like, why? What was the point? It was it, it was meaningless. What it did, it showed the cruelty of Lord Voldemort more than anything else that we've seen to this point. An innocent 17-year-old kid that was there by mistake killed him because it was inconvenient to have him there. That shows the cruelty of Lord Voldemort than, yep. more than anything else. A child. He's a child. He's not even an adult. He still has a trace on him. And he's like, oh, he's there. He shouldn't be here. Get him out of the way. We got other things to do what <laughs> like so yeah. that's that's the last thing i'll say on that but um yeah we will enter chapter 33 the death eaters yeah uh voldemort you know i mean for this it's tough it's like man do i just do i read the chapter out again because there's a lot of stuff in here that it's it's, <laughs> it's uh it. very big so yeah. i won't i won't read it out but i think the first thing of importance here is when uh, he voldemort takes his finger and presses onto uh, Wormtail's dark mark, and it turns like jet black, and he summons all the Death Eaters back to him. That's what that's how they summon him. Voldemort himself doesn't have the dark mark, but he touches one of his followers' dark marks, and all of them get that burning sensation, and they're supposed to apparate right there on the spot. So, uh, in page six forty-six, I'll read the second paragraph. This is what D uh, Voldemort says to Harry. You stand, Harry Potter, upon the remains of my late father, he hissed softly, a muggle and a fool, very like your dear mother. 
but both had their uses, did they not? Your mother died to defend you as a child? And I killed my father. And see how useful he has proved in death. Dude, game, like, lives are just a game to him. That's why I wanted to, like, point that out. Like, he doesn't care. Whatever meets his, like, whatever allows him to reach his end goal, he's, he's willing to pay any price at any cost. Nothing matters to him. The definition of true evil, man. Like, for sure. Now, and I'll read, now, the thing is, I gotta kind of read from here to the end of the chapter because of everything that happens. So, I'll start here when, when he talks about, you see that house upon the hillside, Potter? My father lived there. My mother, a witch who lived here in the village, fell in love with him. But he abandoned her when she told him what she was. He didn't like magic, my father. He left her and returned to his muggle parents before I was even born, Potter. And she died giving birth to me, leaving me to be raised in a muggle orphanage. But I vowed to find him. I revenged myself upon him, that fool who gave me his name. Tom Riddle. Still he paced, his red eyes darting from grave to grave. Listen to me, reliving my family history, he said quietly. Why, I am growing quite sentimental. But look, Harry, my true family returns. <laughs> the air was suddenly full of swishing cloaks. Between graves, behind the yew tree, and every shadowy space, wizards were apparating. All of them were hooded and masked, and one by one they moved forward, slowly, cautiously, as, they, as though they could hardly believe their eyes. Voldemort stood in silence, waiting for them. Then one of the Death Eaters fell to his knees, crawled toward Voldemort, and kissed the hem of his black robes. Master, master, he murmured. The Death Eaters behind him did the same. Each of them approaching Voldemort on his knees, kissing his robes before backing away and standing up, forming a silent circle which enclosed Tom Riddle's grave. Harry, Voldemort, and the sobbing, twitching heap that was Wormtail, yet they left gaps in the circle, as though waiting for more people. Voldemort, however, did not seem to expect more. He looked around at the hooded faces, and though there was no wind, a rustling seemed to run through the circle as though it had shivered. Welcome, Death Eaters, said Voldemort quietly. Thirteen years. Thirteen years since last we met. Yet you call yet you answer my call as though it were yesterday. We are still united under the dark mark then. Or are we? He put back his terrible face and sniffed, his slit like nostrils widening. I smell guilt. There is a stench of guilt upon the air. A second shiver ran through the circle as though each member for it longed but not dared to step back from him. I see you all, whole and healthy, with your powers intact, and such prompt appearances. I ask myself, why did this band of wizards never come to the aid of their master to whom they swore eternal loyalty? No one spoke, no one moved, except Wormtail, who was upon the ground, still sobbing over his bleeding arm. And I answer myself, whispered Voldemort. They must have believed me broken. They thought I was gone. They slipped back among my enemies, and pleaded innocence, and ignorance, and bewitchment. And then I ask myself, but how could they have believed that I would not rise again? They, who knew the steps I took, 
long ago to guard myself against mortal death. That's a foreshadow there, by the way, guys. <laughs> they who had seen the proofs of the immensity of my power in the times when I was mightier than any wizard living. And I answered myself, perhaps they believed a still greater power could exist, one that could vanquish even Lord Voldemort. Perhaps they now pay allegiance to another. Perhaps that champion of commoners, of mudbloods and muggles, Albus Dumbledore. At the mention of Dumbledore's name, the members of the circle stirred. Some muttered and shook their heads, but Voldemort ignored them. It is a disappointment to me. I must confess myself disappointed. One of the men flung themselves forward, breaking the circle. Trembling from head to foot, he collapsed at Voldemort's feet. Master, he shrieked. Master, forgive me. Forgive us all. Voldemort began to laugh. He raised his rod. Crucio! The Death Eater on the ground writhed and shrieked, and Harry was sure the sound must carry to the houses around. Let the police come, he thought desperately. Anyone. Anything. Voldemort raised his wand. The tortured Death Eater lay flat upon the ground, gasping. Get up, Avery, said Voldemort softly. Stand up. You ask forgiveness? I do not forgive. I do not forget. Thirteen long years. I want thirteen years repayment before I forgive you. Wormtail here has paid some of his debt already, have you not, Wormtail? He looked down at Wormtail who continued to stop. You return to me, not out of loyalty, but out of fear of your old friends. You deserve this pain, Wormtail. You know that, don't you? Yes, master, moaned Wormtail. Please, master, please. Yet, you helped me return to my body, said Voldemort coolly, watching Wormtail sob on the ground. Worthless and traitorous as you are, you helped me, and Lord Voldemort rewards his helpers. Voldemort raised his wand again, whirled it through the air, and a streak of what looked like molten silver hung shining in the wand's wake. Momentarily shapeless, it writhed and formed into a gleaming replica of a human hand, bright as moonlight, which soared downward and fixed itself upon Wormtail's bleeding wrist. Wormtail's sobbing stopped abruptly. His breathing harsh and ragged, he raised his head, stared in disbelief at the silver hand, now attached seamlessly to his arm, as though he was wearing a dazzling glove. He flexed his shining fingers, then trembling, picked up a small twig on the ground and crushed it into powder. My lord, he whispered, master, it is beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. He scrambled forward on the knees and kissed the hem of Voldemort's robes. May your loyalty never waver again, Wormtail, said Voldemort. No, my lord, never. Wormtail stood up and took his place in the circle Staring at his powerful new hand, his face still shining with tears, Voldemort now approached the man on Wormtail's right. Lucius, my slippery friend, he whispered, halting before him. I am told that you have not renounced the old ways, though to the world you present a respectable face. You are still ready to take the lead spot of muggle torture, I believe. Yet you never tried to find me, Lucius. Your exploits at the Quidditch World Club were fun, I dare say. But might not your energies have been better directed towards finding and aiding your master? My lord, I was on constant alert, came Lucius Malfoy's voice swiftly from beneath the hood. Had there been any signs from you, any whisper of your whereabouts, I would have been at your side immediately. Nothing could have prevented, and yet you ran from my mark. When a faithful Death Eater sent it into the sky last summer, said Voldemort lazily, 
And Malfoy stopped. Mr. Malfoy stopped talking abruptly. Yes, I know all about that, Lucius. You have disappointed me. I expect more faithful service in the future. Of course, my lord. Of course, you are merciful. Thank you. Voldemort moved on and stopped, staring at the space large enough for two people that separated Malfoy and the next man. The Lestranges should stand here, said Voldemort quietly. But they are entombed in Azkaban. They were faithful. They went to Azkaban rather than renounce me. When Azkaban is broken open, the Lestranges will be honored beyond their wildest dreams. The Dementors will join us. They are our natural allies. We will recall the banished giants. And I shall have my devoted servant return to me. And an army of creatures whom all fear. He walked on. Some of the Death Eaters he passed in silence, but he paused before others and spoke to them. MacNair, destroying dangerous beasts for the Ministry of Magic now, Wormtail tells me. You shall have better victims than that soon, MacNair. Lord Voldemort will provide. Thank you, Master. Thank you, murmured MacNair. And here, Voldemort moved on to the two largest hooded figures, we have Crab. You will do better this time, will you not, Crab? And you, Goyle? They bowed clumsily, muttering dully. Yes, master. We will, master. The same goes for you, not, said Voldemort quietly as he passed the stooped figure of Mr. Goyle's shadow. My lord, I prostrate myself before you. I am your most faithful. That will do, said Voldemort. He then reached the largest gap of all as he stood surveying it with his blank red eyes as though he could still see people standing there. And here we have six missing Death Eaters. Three dead in my service. One, too cowardly to return. He will pay. One, I believe, has left me forever. He will be killed, of course. And one, who remains my most faithful servant and who has already re-entered my service. The Death Eaters stirred. Harry saw their eyes dart sideways as that one another through their masks. He is at Hogwarts, that faithful servant, and it was through his efforts that our young friend arrived here tonight. Yes, said Voldemort, grin curling his lipless mouth as the eyes of the circle flashed in Harry's direction. Harry Potter has kindly rejoined us for my rebirthing party. One might go so far to call him my guest of honor. There was a silence, and the Death Eaters to the right of Wormtail stepped forward, and Lucius Malfoy's voice spoke under the mask. Master, we crave to know. We beg you to tell us how you achieved this, this miracle, how you managed to return to us. Ah, what a story it is, Lucius. And it begins, and ends, with my young friend here. He walked lazily over to stand next to Harry so that the eyes of the whole circle were upon the two of them. The snake continued to circle around. You know, of course, they have called this boy my downfall? Voldemort said softly, his red eyes upon Harry, whose scar began to burn so fiercely that he almost screamed in agony. You all know that on the night I lost my powers and my body, I tried to kill him. His mother died in the attempt to save him, and unwittingly provided him with a protection I admit I had not foreseen. I could not touch the boy. Voldemort raised one of his long white fingers and put it very close to Harry's cheek. His mother left upon him traces of her sacrifice. This is old magic. I should have remembered it. I was foolish to overlook it, but no matter. I can touch him now. Harry felt the cold tip of the long white finger touch him and thought his head would burst open with the pain. Voldemort laughed softly in his ear, then took his finger away and addressed the Death Eaters. I miscalculated, my friends, I admit it, 
My curse was deflected by the woman's foolish sacrifice and rebounded upon myself. Ah, pain beyond pain, my friends. Nothing could have prepared me for it. I was ripped from my body. I was less than spirit, less than the meanest ghost, but still, I was alive. What I was, even I do not know. I who have gone further than anyone down the path that leads to immortality. You know my goal, to conquer death. And now I was tested, and it appeared that one or more of my experience had worked, for I had not been killed, though the curse should have done it. Nevertheless, I was as powerless as the weakest creature alive, and without the means to help myself, for I had no body. And every spell that I might have helped me required the use of a wand. I remember only forcing myself sleeplessly, endlessly, second by second to exist. I settled in a faraway place in a forest. I waited. Surely one of my faithful Death Eaters would try and find me. One of them would come and perform the magic I could not to restore me to a body. But I waited in vain. The shiver ran once more through the circle of listening Death Eaters. Voldemort let the silence spiral horribly before continuing. Only one power remained to me. I could possess the bodies of others. But I dared not go where humans were plentiful, for I knew that orders were still abroad and searching for me. Sometimes I inhabited animals, snakes being my preferred choice. But I was little better off inside them than as a pure spirit, for their bodies were ill-adapted to perform magic. And my possession of them shortened their lives. None of them lasted long. Then, four years ago, the means for my return seemed assured. A wizard, young, foolish, and gullible, wandered across my path in the forest I had made my home. Oh, he seemed to be the very chance I had been dreaming of, for he was a teacher at Dumbledore's school. Easy to bend to my will, he brought me back to this country, and after a while I took possession of his body to supervise him closely as he carried out my orders. But my plan failed. I did not manage to steal a sorcerer's stone. I was not to be assured of mortal life. I was thwarted. Thwarted once again by Harry Potter. Silence once more. Nothing was stirring. Not even the leaves on the yew tree. The Death Eaters were quite motionless. The glittering eyes and the masks fixed upon Voldemort and upon Harry. The servant died when I left his body, and I was left as weak as I had ever been. Voldemort continued. I returned to my hiding place far away, and I will not pretend to you that I didn't then fear that I might never regain my powers. Yes, that was perhaps my darkest hour. I could not hope that I would be sent another wizard to possess, and I had given up hope now that any of my Death Eaters cared what had become of me. One or two of the masked wizards in the circle moved uncomfortably, but Voldemort took no notice. And then, not even a year ago, when I had almost abandoned hope, it happened at last. A servant returned to me. Wormtail here, who had faked his own death to escape justice, was driven out of hiding by those he had once counted friends and decided to return to his master. He sought me in the country where it had been rumored I was hiding. Helped, of course, by the rats he met along the way. Wormtail has a curious affinity with rats. Do you not, Wormtail? His filthy little friends told me there was a place deep in an Albanian forest that they avoided, where small animals like themselves had met their deaths by a dark shadow that possessed them. But his journey back to me was not smooth, was it, Wormtail? For one hungry night on the edge of the forest, where he'd hoped to find me, he foolishly stopped at an inn for some food, and who should he meet there but one Bertha Jorkins, a witch from the Ministry of Magic. Now see the way fate favors Lord Voldemort. This might have been the end of Wormtail, and of my last hope for a generation. But Wormtail, displaying a presence of mind I would never have expected for him, 
convinced Bertha Jorkins to accompany him on a nighttime stroll. He overpowered her. He brought her to me, and Bertha Jorkins, who might have ruined all, proved instead to be a gift beyond my wildest dreams. For with a little persuasion, she became a veritable mine of information. She told me that the Triwizard Tournament would be played at Hogwarts this year. She told me that she knew of a faithful Death Eater who would only be too willing to help me if I could only contact him. She told me many things, but the means I used to break the memory charm that was already placed upon her were powerful, so when I extracted all useful information from her mind and body, both were damaged beyond repair. She had now served her purpose. I could not possess her, so I disposed of her. Voldemort smiled his terrible smile, his red eyes blank and pitiless. Wormtail's body, of course, was ill-adapted for position as all assumed him dead, and would attract far too much attention if noticed. However, he was the able-bodied servant I needed, and though poor wizard he is, Wormtail was able to follow the instructions I gave him, which would return me to a rudimentary, weak body of my own, a body I would be able to inhabit while awaiting the essential ingredients for my true rebirth, a spell or two of my own invention, with a little help from my dear Nagini. Voldemort's red eyes fell upon the continually circling snake. A potion concocted from unicorn blood and the snake venom Nagini provided, I was soon returned to an almost human form strong enough to travel. There was no hope of stealing the Sorcerer's Stone anymore, for I knew that Dumbledore would have seen to it that it was destroyed. But I was willing to embrace mortal life again before chasing immortality. I set my sights lower. I would settle for my old body back again, and my old strength. And I knew to achieve this, it is an old piece of dark magic, the potion that revived me tonight. I would need three powerful ingredients. Well, one of them was already at hand, was it not, Wormtail? Flesh given by a servant. My father's bone naturally meant that we would have to come here where he was buried. But the blood of a foe. Wormtail would have had me use any wizard, would you not, Wormtail? Any wizard who hated me. As so many of them still do. But I knew the one I must use if I were to rise again more powerful than I had been when I had fallen. I wanted Harry Potter's blood. I wanted the blood of the one who stripped me of this power 13 years ago for the lingering protection his mother once given him would then reside in my veins too. But how to get at Harry Potter? For he has better protected than I think even he knows. Protected in ways devised by Dumbledore long ago when it fell to him to arrange the boy's future. Dumbledore invoked an ancient magic to ensure the boy's protection as long as he is in his relation's care. Not even I can touch him there. Then of course there was a Quidditch World Cup, and I thought his protection might be weaker there away from his relations than Dumbledore, but I was not yet strong enough to attempt a kidnap in the midst of a horde of Ministry Wizards. And then the boy would return to Hogwarts, where he's under the crooked nose of that muggle-loving fool from morning until night. So how could I take him? Why, by using Bertha Jorkin's information, of course. Use my one faithful Death Eater stationed at Hogwarts to ensure the boy's name was entered into the Goblet of Fire. Use my Death Eater to ensure that the boy won the tournament, that he touched the Triwizard Cup first, the cup which my Death Eater had turned into a port key which would bring him here, beyond the reach of Dumbledore's help and protection, and into my waiting arms. And here he is, the boy you all believe to have been my downfall. Voldemort moved slowly and forward and turned to face Harry. He raised his round. 
Crucio! It was a pain beyond Harry, beyond anything Harry had ever experienced. His very bones were on fire. His head would surely split along his scar. His eyes were rolling madly in his head, and he wanted it to end, to black out, to die. And then it was gone. He was hanging limply in the robes, binding him to the headstone of Voldemort's father, looking up into those bright red eyes through a kind of mist. The night was ringing with the sound of the Death Eater's laughter. You see, I think, how foolish it was to suppose that this boy could ever have been stronger than me, said Voldemort. But I want there to be no mistake in anybody's mind. Harry Potter escaped me by a lucky chance, and I'm going to prove my power by killing him here and now, in front of you all when there is no Dumbledore to help him and no mother to die for him. I will give him his chance. He will be allowed to fight, and you will be left in no doubt which of us is the stronger. Just a little longer, Nagini, he whispered, and the snake glided away through the grass where the Death Eaters stood watching. Now untie him, Wormtail, and give him back his wand. Boom! Baby. It's going down for real. That's right, man. Oh man! Yeah, man. We got to use different songs. We're not using the same ones every time, bro. <laughs> use that song every time yeah, it's going down. Yeah. But <laughs> that is where we're leaving off for the book stuff here. And like we mentioned, there's no plot holes, so we've got really interesting facts left to cover, and that closes us out for today. Which a lot of those are going to be done by Chase himself. Uh, a couple things I wanted to just mention throughout that chapter that I thought were really important. Obviously, we talk about the ingredients that were necessary. Bone of the Father, Flesh of the Servant, Blood of the Enemy, right? Those are all really important. But the, there's really big foreshadowed events where he says that he's protected in ways that even he doesn't know. Dumbledore invoked ancient magic so that when he's in his relation's care, he can't be touched. That's a lot of foreshadows there. Right. So, like, yeah, it was. there's a lot of big foreshadowing that we kind of went through and ran through. What I'm going to do... If you don't mind, it's up to you. But I'm going to run through the foreshadows that I have just to get them out of the way. And then I'll let you finish us out with our interesting facts. Does that sound good to you? Sounds good to me, man. Just real quick about that chapter yeah. you read. <laughs> Going to, like, the movie. And I talked to you about this the other day. Like, to me, like, we even looked up in the book yesterday just to verify. Like, it says, like, 30 wizards are there, right? Uh, in another chapter that we'll talk about later, like yeah, it's supposed like, to be later, a, oh, later on. Not to give away any so, spoilers. It's supposed to yeah, be a lot that's of next week. Death Eaters, right? Yeah, we'll just say a lot of Death Eaters. In the movie, yeah. it felt like there was like ten of them, if that. And I want to bring this up because I don't understand why they have cone heads. <laughs> Does that make any sense to you? Like why they have black cones as heads? As like not heads, but know. their hoods are black cones. The only the thing I can think of that would make sense to why they did it like that is maybe they were trying to give the uh, visual impression of it being like a cult, like like you like we were talking about. Okay. With like you said they they almost reminded you of like the Ku Klux Klan in black, um, in black what's it called yeah. um, robes yeah. with with the with the cone heads, right? So my only thing is like maybe yeah. they're trying to make it seem like a dangerous cult, such as. You know the, the the KKK that you you had made the allusion to. Yeah. So maybe that's the only you know with the masks. But again, that's not mentioned in the book. I think that's just something that the movie decided they were going to do on their own. But if you ask me why I think they did that, I think it was to draw the illusion that they were a dangerous cult that uh, 
followed, you know, uh, evil, basically. So that's what I think. I mean, I, I guess. I, it looked like a circus to me, but yeah, yeah, I'll take it, man. Good stuff. I'll let you run through the uh, foreshadowed events, though. Yeah, so it's going to be real quick because they're all just quick pointed moments, but I'll start with the one about Fred and George talking about blackmailing and sending that letter back out in the, the chapter 29, The Dream. So yep. they, they send out that letter to blackmail somebody who comes up later on. And uh, page 571, there's the uh, second paragraph. The, uh, the <clears throat> Where is it? 571, the second paragraph here. It says, The ministry will be looking from now on. Dumbledore, Dumbledore notified them. Potter, you just keep your mind on the third task. So this is... I guess I should read the entirety of the paragraph. He yawned widely so his scar stretched. The lopsided mouth revealed the number of missing teeth. Now Dumbledore's told me, you three fancy yourself as investigators, but there's nothing you can do for Crouch. The ministry will be looking for him now, and Dumbledore's notified him. Potter, you just keep your mind on the third task. For me, that was a, a foreshadow of like why they don't want he why Moody doesn't want them to be poking around in the business because of what we learn next week when we go into it. Um, and going on, to read the last paragraph of page 571. You two, Council Moody, his normal eye on Ron and Hermione, you two sit close to Potter, all right? I'm keeping an eye on things, but all the same, you can never have too many eyes out. I thought that was a big foreshadow <laughs> for, yeah. for later. Going into page 576, uh, this is, when he said that you could hear an insect humming uh, gently somewhere behind the curtain, that's before he passed out into the dream. Well, we know who that is. Well, we, we don't know yet, but we are going to find out. That's a foreshadow of what's to come. That insect in the divination classroom outside the window that witnessed Harry fall down. So that's a big foreshadow. Uh, page 588, paragraphs 4 and 5. This is going to be uh, good for, let's see, 1, 2, 3. So... When this is Dumbledore and Mad-Eye Moody talking in the Pensieve about the Dementors. This is like, this is a, the flashback in the Pensieve. He says, ah, I was forgetting. You don't like the Dementors, do you, Albus? Said Moody with a sardonic smile. No, said Dumbledore calmly. I'm afraid yeah. I don't. I have long felt the Ministry is wrong to ally itself with such creatures. Yep. Yeah, that's a big foreshadow moment there. That's a big one, yeah. Uh, 593. One, yeah. There's the eighth paragraph. Let's see. One, two, three. Perfect. So, this is this is the one we were talking. We already mentioned this one, but it's, it's fun to bring it up. He said, "When uh, we're, this is after Ludo Bagman gets like let off by everyone like not voting for him to be uh, in prison, and Mr. Crouch looked furious. The dungeon was ringing with applause. Now Bagman got to his feet and bowed. Despicable, Mr. Crouch spat at Dumbledore sitting down as Bagman walked out of the dungeon. Rook would get him a job indeed. The day Ludo Bagman joins us will be a sad day indeed for the Ministry. Well, that." came to pass so <laughs> okay right yeah uh, yeah here we go now going on to page 595 reading the last paragraph going into the first paragraph on the next page <clears throat> this is again in the pen see the dementors were gliding back into the room the boys three companions rose quietly from their seats the woman with the heavy lidded eyes so that one was the one that that was basically bellatrix's quote that i already read earlier i don't need to reread it but that was when she said the dark lord is going to rise again that's a big foreshadow moment mm -hmm. uh going into page 598 i think it was important to talk about snape's dialogue here when uh we goes um the voice uh, they where am i here 
598 and second paragraph there it is perfect it's coming back kakarov's 2 stronger and clearer than ever so that's important because it's it's mentioning the dark mark right we know we know that now we can mention that because we see what voldemort did here at the end of this chapter press it and, and summoned all his death eaters but before that happened this is a big foreshadow of that of that coming to pass the the um thing coming stronger and clearer than ever the dark mark so going on to page 604 uh i mean that's that's more along what you've already read talking about how you know harry's like asks dumbledore why he trusts snape and he's like well that's between me and snape Mm -hmm. so that's a foreshadow of what's to come later on um page 609 malfoy talking into his hand like a walkie-talkie we know who was in his hand at that point in time like we'll we'll find out it's a foreshadow of what's to come that we'll find out next week um Page 616. I'm going to read the first paragraph on page 616. That is... Uh, Fleur Delacour, Harry noticed, was eyeing Bill with great interest over her mother's shoulder. Harry could tell that she had no objection whatsoever to the long hair or earrings with fangs on them. Uh, that Fleur and Bill, that's a big foreshadow for them. <laughs> that's the first time they get mentioned in the same place together. So remember that one, guys, for uh, Deathly Hallows. Um... Last paragraph, no, so the last paragraph on page 17 through the first, like you were mentioning, talking about Percy, uh, the ministry keeps wants to keep Mr. Crouch's disappearance quiet, but Percy's been hauled in for questioning, and they're not letting him fill in for Mr. Crouch anymore, Mr. Fudge is going to be the judge. Well, here's the thing, what I think, I guess I should probably bring this up more next week, if Mr. Crouch was the judge, things could have been handled differently because Cornelius Fudge would never have been there uh, for what happens at the end of this book. So I, I think that's a foreshadow of what's to come. Um, going to page 648. 648, that is going to take us into the chapter, The Death Eaters. Now, <clears throat> we I mentioned this one already, but the second paragraph, when he says, they who knew the steps I took long ago to guard myself against mortal death. That's a huge foreshadow for the Half-Blood Prince. That's really big. Um, yep. Page 650, talking about the last paragraph. All the, uh, <laughs> this one is a, the, probably, like you said, with the big surprise that comes at the end. This is probably the, one of the biggest foreshadows, maybe like the third biggest foreshadow in the series. But when he says, one, who, uh, on here we have six missing, missing Death Eaters, three dead in my service, one too cowardly to return, he will pay. One, I believe, who has left me forever, he will be killed, of course. Well, that's that's a big foreshadow for who he thinks left him forever. And then, yeah, right. I'll leave that there. <laughs> but the very last one <laughs> uh, is the one that I mentioned right as we got off of the, the last page is when Voldemort says, like, even he cannot touch Harry while he's in his relation's care. That's a, that is a foreshadow for what we find out later on and why Harry has to stay with the Dursleys during the summer um, holidays there. So, with that being said, I will do my one quick interesting fact, which is literally two, I would maybe say less than a minute long. (laughs) My interesting fact is on, his name is Og. So if you guys don't remember, Mrs. Weasley, when her and Bill came to visit Harry to kind of like cheer him on for the third task, she goes into a story about how there was a game, uh, a gamekeeper before Hagrid, and uh, that his name was Og. Well, Og, like his his presence 
is kind of not really a, a plot hole, but it's interesting because if we think about it, Hagrid is older than Mrs. Weasley. And doing the math, she attended Hogwarts during the 1960s. So really, it would like if, if Og was still acting as a gamekeeper in the 1960s because Hagrid's older than Mrs. Weasley, it would suggest that Hagrid has actually remained an assistant of Og's for over 20 years. So, like, I mean, would you really be an assistant for 20 years? I don't know. But either way, Og is someone who was the gamekeeper before Hagrid, and he's actually the one that Hagrid learned how to do the job from. He was Hagrid was his assistant, is widely believed. So not much oh, is, is cool. mentioned of him that's in terms awesome. of what he looked like. There's no terms of, like, you know, his build. Um, but they're saying they, they, there is a fan theory that it's derived from a biblical name and, like, a... Uh, Ogden there was a giant, so it makes you think he was a larger person, kind of similar to Hagrid, you know, as someone who could handle being the gamekeeper on the grounds there, but that's not confirmed, it's just he is, he's mentioned there as a figurehead only, the only reason I wanted to mention is, number one, to know that there was a gamekeeper before Hagrid that Mrs. Weasley remembers, and two, that there could be an inconsistency between the, the time periods of uh, when he takes over, unless we're just supposed to accept the fact that Hagrid's going to be an assistant only for 20 years until the guy decides to retire. So that's all I wanted to mention there. The old gamekeeper Og. That's my interesting fact. Chase, close us out for episode or for part five uh, here for our Goblet of Fire um, run through. Yeah, man, good stuff. Um, about these foreshadowing moments, did you want me to mention any that I guess? we already mentioned or you were just doing ones that like we didn't mention i'm assuming right yeah ones that we didn't already go through that we've already yeah a lot of them we tackled while we were going through the the stuff you know what i mean a lot of them because like yeah that's what i wanted to make sure okay yeah no we're good then yeah i just wanted to make sure uh you weren't like picking out the stuff like we didn't um no we we already read through it that's that's what i heard yeah Cool. Okay, so. good stuff. Yeah, man. Um, so my interesting facts uh, starts off here with, of course, you know, flesh, blood and, blood, and bone. That was like a really big chapter there because, of course, you know, the Dark Lord rises again, right? Um, well, that potion is actually known as the Regeneration Potion, um, if you're wondering what that is. Uh, so it's blood of the enemy forcibly taken. You will resurrect your foe. Uh, is how it, you know, how it starts out there. And the known ingredients, ingredients are bone of the father, flesh of the servant, and blood of a foe. Um, it's used to restore wizards to their actual bodies. The characteristics of it, so this is how this is broken down, how it wound up, you, you could kind of visualize what was happening. So the sparks occurred. The blue poison winds up coming after that, and that's caused by the bone that's actually thrown into the potion. It winds up burning red afterwards only when the flesh is added. So the flesh causes that burning red. Then the blinding white occurs when blood is added, and then that causes the steam is the way that works. Uh, But, of course, it's super old magic, actually, um, Wormtail completing the potion is one of the most notable moments, of course. All the other moments haven't been historically documented, but it's actually known as super old magic. Um, then from this point, kind of going into my interesting facts here, uh, I had some cool stuff on actually the long bottoms because of 
you know, relating to what we learned about uh, in this episode here, right? And what we've heard about in previous episodes relating to Neville, right? So notable family members of the Longbottoms. This is pretty cool. So Hargtang Longbottom, uh, Kalidora Longbottom. There's one that's just Mr. Longbottom, so of course they don't, that one they don't really know the name, but Augusta Longbottom, Algy Longbottom, Enid Longbottom, Frank Longbottom, Alice Longbottom, and then of course you have Neville Longbottom and Hannah Longbottom. Well, here's kind of what happened. So a lot of people don't know too, they're actually related families to the Black family. So like Sirius Black, uh, Weasley family, the Crouch family, and the Abbott family. Uh, those are all like related to, and a lot of people don't know that, which is pretty cool. Um, so uh, Augusta Longbottom actually said, so this is kind of what happened back in like their history for a bit leading up to how they kind of got accused of you know who. So he said, my son and his wife were tortured into insanity by you know who's followers. They were Aurorers, you know, very well respected within the wizarding community highly gifted the pair of them right so they were actually believed to be part of the sacred 28 so the sacred 28 were the 28 british families that were still pure blood uh frank and alice longbottom of course were neville longbottom's parents and they were both aurorers and were actually members i guess we'll kind of dig into this now um but they were actually members of what my favorite book coming up is that we kind of jump into is the original order of the phoenix uh, so they actually both participated in the first Wizarding War, and that's when, you know, uh, you mentioned who they were tortured by. Um, one thing that is really cool is so they were placed in actually the Janus Thickery Ward, Thicky Ward, uh, for the spell damage at St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies. Maladies. And injuries. Is that how it's Maladies. That? Maladies. Maladies. Melodies, Ma- okay, melodies. Sorry, my like ma- that's my weird Georgia accent yeah. that sounds like I'm <laughs> I'm from North Dakota or something. Um, <laughs> magical melodies, maladies, injuries, mal. Is it mal- maladies? Maladies. Yeah, maladies. I'm the worst with names. <laughs> Malady. M a l a d i e s. Maladies. Yes. Is that yeah, right? you spelled it right. You just said it yeah. wrong. <laughs> it's maladies. Yeah. Can't pronounce <laughs> things, man. Like what did I keep saying for? Um, Gingery, yeah, and <laughs> yeah then, like also Gendry. like this entire series you've yeah. called like parcel mouth parcel without the R. It's with there's an R parcel in there, bro. Tongue, yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's parcel. It's parcel mouth, not parcel. There's an R. There, there's, yeah, no. there's an R in there. Jay Nelly's got you on the correct terms, correct <laughs> pronunciation. <laughs> Names go. and pronunciations, I um, got you. Most definitely. Uh, yeah, but they stayed there permanently, of course, until Neville, Neville was raised by his grandmother. But the Janus Thicky Ward, here's what's really cool. It's Ward 49 of St. Mungo's Hospital, located on the fourth floor, used for permanent spell damage from jinxes, hexes, and incorrectly applied spells. The ward was actually named for Janus Thicky, a wizard who attempted to fake his own death by framing a lethifold attack so lethifold you can look up the correct pronunciation i think i got it right but it's l-e-t-h-i-f-o-l-d if you want to look that up so lethifold as i call it also known as a living shroud is a related cousin to the dementor 
carnivorous and extremely dangerous magical beast, considered a dark creature because of its extremely aggressive and violent nature. It resembles exactly a black cloak, roughly half an inch thick. It appeared slightly it appears slightly thicker if the creature had has recently digested a victim. It glides along surfaces preying on humans, attacks only at night when the target is sleeping and digests them whole to death. Like that's terrifying if you ask me. Um so actually there's one account where one person has survived an attack. There's only one person that's ever survived, and that person is Flavius Belby. Uh, Flavius Belby uh, actually lived a super long time ago, so I'll tell you about him in just a second, but he recalled the attack. He said, it resembled nothing so much as a rippling black cape. The edges were fluttering slightly as it slithered up my bed towards me. And then, uh, so protection from a Leofold before Lethifold, before I tell you how he defended himself, the only known effective method of protection against a Lethifold is using a Patronus charm, just like the Dementor. Um, similar to that of a Dementor, as discovered by Flavius Belvi, there he is the only known survivor of the Lethifold attack. Other spells, which he tried during the attack, so these are the only ones that they know don't work because he's the only one that's tried and lived to tell the tale. He tried a stunning spell, impediment jinx, impediment jinx. How do you say it? impediment? I think one. The one Harry yeah. learned. Impediment, yeah. yeah. And impediment jinx, neither one of those worked at all. Um, he was just trying to hinder the target or fight it off. But uh, So here's what happened was... Lethifolds at the time were a very rare species in 1782 and they were only found in tropical climates. In Papua New Guinea, Flavius Belby managed to repel an attack because he was in a REM cycle, not in fully sleep. After an unsuccessful repelling attempts, attempts from the impediment charm and the stunning spell, Belby managed to conjure a Patronus at the last second, causing the Lethifold to release him and slink away, almost like a slinky, and just, like, escape. Like, he didn't kill it or anything. It says previous victims had apparently been unable to do this because they were either asleep, were muggles, or unable to not think properly casting a Patronus charm because... They couldn't wake up in time. It says it's virtually impossible to determine the number of Lethifold victims as creatures because they leave no clues to their presence after they kill you. They just digest you whole, so there's no evidence there at all. They're much easier to calculate, however, is how many people have faked Lethifold attacks for their own reasons. One known case of an individual attempting to fake a Lethifold attack was Janice Thickey, who is who the ward is actually named after. So in 1973, he left a note behind that says, Oh no, a Lethifold's got me, and I'm suffocating. Because of this, yeah, he was actually left in his empty bed, and his wife and children were super mourning him, actually threw a funeral and everything for him because they thought he got digested. 
However, it was seen and discovered that he was in an affair and was living five miles away from his house and was discovered by the landlady of his house that his wife still owned and was found at the Green Dragon Pub. <laughs> so, wow, really classy, man, really classy. Um, yeah, and that's why it's named after uh, Janice Thickey. So just another couple cool things um, about the ward is another notable wizard, Celestia Warback. Um, her parents actually met a man uh, who actually saved her father uh, before and then actually saved... Uh, through a grapevine basically what happened was she had a brother that had a future wife that was attacked by a lethifold and it says like he disguised himself as a stage curtain the lethifold did and he was an entertainer was uh the brother at the time who was watching his like wife from the stage and the lethifold tried to attack him on stage in front of his wife and uh he died so like there's no really true account on what exactly happened but that's the account from the wife that watched her husband die from the stage and they like found this out because they got the wife to talk about it because celestina warback um that's uh her brother that died so like that's pretty messed up but yeah so yeah it's the only one notable survivor um notable characteristics of lethe folds they attack victims when sleeping like i said digest their victims whole but also can disguise themselves uh with sheets pillowcases um stage curtains pretty much anything that looks like a cloak basically pretty wild um notable patients that have been in that exact ward which is found of course this is in St. Mungo's Hospital for uh, Maladies and Injuries. Um, Gildery Lockhart has been in that ward for the memory charm. Um, we've heard, of course, Frank and Alice Longbottom. Agnes, uh, what happened was she was a patient that was addicted to polyjuice potion, and she kept consuming so much of it that she couldn't have a memory. <laughs> so they threw her in there. Roderick Bode, who is an unspeakable, we've talked about him before a little bit. In 1946, he was a target of a Death Eater and was thrown in there. Um, Herbert Clory, uh, this one's cool. So he was a muggle human minister in the British government. He was a victim of a botched imperious curse in 1996. And then from then on, he acted like he was a duck. So a lot of people don't know this. Actually, St. Mungo's Hospital does take humans if they've been affected by magic and don't have any recount on it that's the actual um that's i guess the exception there i would say um so uh of course mungo bonham found it in the 1600s famous healer was mungo bonham she uh, was born in 1560 1659 died at age 99 um the emblem of emblem of saint mungo's hospital is actually a wand crossed with bone so since we're talking about flesh blood and bone i thought that was interesting um it actually serves the entire british population um and then to enter the hospital you must step through the window that appears red bricked condemned 
it's a department store and it's uh, been purged and so what you have to do is you actually have to walk up through the apartment door uh, which acts as a magical gateway similar to platform nine and three quarters um, they had planned on putting it in Diagon Alley originally uh, but it became too noticeable uh, to actually fit there and especially with the shops there so they moved it to a muggle building um, in England is what happened um, and one more example of a muggle that's been there is Willie Windershin. So what happened was she had lost so many fingers uh, due to um, what happened was she came across enchanted doorknobs that bit off all her fingers and uh, her fingers wouldn't grow back because the doorknobs were bewitched. Um, and, the, and then of course she was actually housed next to uh, Herbert Herbert Clory that we just talked about. So, um, and it says that eventually, so the person that bewitched the doorknobs was in prison in Azkaban um, for all the doorknobs, of course, like biting off all the prosecutors. Uh, but the healers at St. Mungo's Hospital are required to receive an exceed expectation on the Newt's exam in potions, transfigurations, charms, herbology, and defense against the dark arts just to work there in any category at all um some last notable known healers for you dilly's derwick she was the headmistress of hogwarts and was a healer from 1741 to 1768 lancelot uh actually exactly who you're thinking about so still rumored to be um a good friend of arthur and his knight and also was referred by merlin which is how he wound up working there uh, Miriam Strout, we know who she is. Uh, and then the floor plans, I'm going to save for Order of the Phoenix because that's pretty cool uh, because we have a really cool patient that winds up in there at one point. And uh, just to kind of close us out here, uh, just add one more thing. This was on the, speaking of, you know, I'm a Quidditch guy and we talked about Mr. Bagman and his uh, dirty deeds, right? So, um, uh, what is actually really cool, so uh, Bagman here, he was a beater on the Windborne Wasps in the English national Quidditch team. He was most known for dirty and foul play and known for betting on games he actually participated in. So I found that really ironic considering what comes up next episode that we'll kind of talk about towards the end there. Um, also, the Puddlemore United Quidditch team, um, they were actually a big donor for the St. Mungo's Hospital, so I thought that was cool. Um, you know, of course, and one big player of them, they're part of the British and Irish Quidditch League, uh, was, you know, Oliver Wood was on their team, and they won 22 times League Cups, uh, two times in the European League, Chaser, uh, Jossican, Wardock, in the 1900s, Seeker, Benji Williams, a reserve keeper, of course, Oliver Wood, and Philbert Derber was uh, the manager at the time. And uh, that team that Oliver Wood was on was a massive contributor to actually the St. Madungo's uh, hospital there. So, and then we'll go through, um, at, when we get closer to my favorite book, uh, we'll talk about some of the most notable patients there and 
the floors because it, it plays a big part in the next book. But that's what I had for my interesting facts, man. The Lethe folds. Awesome. Yeah, dude, those are cool. I didn't know about those before you brought them up. So that's something interesting. I hope you know the listeners took something from that. So great stuff on the interesting facts there, dude. Um, one thing I wanted to do here before we close this out is I want to summarize kind of where we're at because we're we left we left we're gonna be leaving off of where we're at today right before the climax and ending of the book. So guys, what we've done tackled today, we've gotten to the dream where Harry has got went kind of in a vision and saw Voldemort receiving news that where Wormtail messed up, it's been fixed. So Voldemort's plans are still in motion. He's good to go. We go into the Pensieve. We start seeing really important flashbacks of Dumbledore's memories trying to piece together the puzzle of what's happening and what's going on. Most importantly, the last trial of the three. We had the one with Karkaroff, the one with Bagman, then the one with Crouch's son, Bellatrix, her husband, and that unknown fourth Death Eater. Then from there, we go into the, the third task. You know, we see... You know, what, what's happened so far? We heard, we heard Fleur scream. We don't know whatever happened to her at this point. Crumb, he tried to attack Cedric. They had to, to knock him out and send the sparks up. Cedric and Harry, they grab the thing. They, they think they won the tournament together. They end up in a graveyard. Then just, out of the, just because of who he is with no mercy, Voldemort orders Wormtail to kill Cedric on the spot. Cedric dies. They bring Voldemort, Wormtail brings Voldemort back to life with the potion that Chase just told you guys about in his interesting facts, the, the regenerative potion there. Then he calls and summons his Death Eaters, tells them the whole story of where they, well, how they got to where they're at today, tells Wormtail to give Harry back his wand, and finished out with setting up the epic duel between 14-year-old Harry Potter and darkest wizard of all time, Lord Voldemort. And that's what we're leaving you off with is with uh, Wormtail handing Harry back his wand. So uh, next week, we're going to be closing out uh, the information inside the books, uh, tackling chapters 34 through 37. Then the week after that, we'll be closing out Goblin entirely when we talk about the differences episode. So what I'll do here just to give us a little, uh, uh, those things that we always do. I know Chase kind of mentioned in the beginning, but it really does help us out a lot when you guys like, click, and subscribe. We're starting to see um, reviews from everybody that, that are starting to come in more often. Uh, we got a ton of those. We enjoy them. They help us do what we do here. All the follows, all the likes, all the subscribes, every click on any sort of platform that gets you to where we are allows us to bring this content to you because you guys know it's a lot. And, and for us to be able to do it, we need to make sure that there's an audience for it to listen to. And so do the people that we work with that allow us to, to get this stuff out to you. So, I don't know if you have anything you want to add before I give us our little breakdown today, but I'm pretty much out of stuff that I need to say. Do you want anything to add anything before I give us our old uh, our old little chine off? Yeah, man. No, it's it's all you. Um, you know, I think this is you know we've reached the climax of this book, and uh, it's definitely one that. My personal, I would rank it my personal number two. It's it's that good to me. And, you know, um, we're just going to keep driving this train here. I'll say, you know, before I let you close this out, I have uh, in honor of my boy Cedric, I'm going to give him one final swish of the flick. <laughs> and I'm going to put this wand in the air, man. And like, uh, you know, Jay Nelly said, you know, cast a spell on that subscribe button. We, uh, it really means a lot to us. You can follow us at Official Ridiculous Patronus 
uh, that Instagram page there. You can follow us over on our Facebook page at Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. Uh, Brown 129 Jay Nelly over here. Uh, always here for us, and I'll let you sign us off, man. Perfect. Well, guys, we're looking forward to bringing you the end of Goblet Fire. It's the first big book in the series that we will have tackled come next week. Uh, If you like what you heard today, you're not going to want to miss next week. So with that being said, guys, this has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh. Factor Fantasy. Signing Signing off. off.